This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Get in, losers. This is the Lady Killers, a feminine rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy. I'm Rocco. And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female identifying killers in horror and more. Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines. We'll tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her? Join us on Thursdays as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen. No boys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman, and I'm here to tell you that not a day goes by I don't regret the fact that we didn't record a full episode on Frank Darabont's Oscar-nominated IMDb-topping TNT favorite, The Shawshank Redemption. I look back on the way us losers were then young stupid kids who committed that terrible crime i want to talk to them i want to try to talk some sense into them tell them the way things are that we should space these episodes out like sane people but i can't those episodes are canon and this old loser is all that's left and i gotta live with that or I could just go ahead and record a new one, <laughs> which is what we're going to do today. Because uh, constant listeners, uh, for our next installment of The Long Watch, we're going to get busy living and get busy talking because we're going back to Shawshank Prison where, I'll be honest, I've just been missing my friends. Uh, but fortunately, I'm not alone here in the middle of this prison yard. No, 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 no. Justin, 
I hear you're a man who can get things. I sure can, Mike. And this is Justin Gerber. And I'm here to tell you, I can give you all of my attention, all of my support for this long awaited episode on the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> it is long awaited. Uh, it's long awaited. But look, I got, I need a, I need a rock hammer. Mm-hmm. I yeah. need, a, I need a Debbie Harry poster. I'm shaking things up, but most importantly, I need okay. you okay. to tell us when you first saw the Shawshank Redemption. Well, as we'll probably discuss, the marketing for this movie wasn't great. So I wasn't rushing out to see this in theaters as a young teenager by any means. But by the time I got to home video, and I feel like this is a story for many people. I had a couple of friends who saw it and thought it was just great. And I, I was very skeptical about it. I just mm-hmm. did not. I was like, oh, okay, well, this be some middle of the road prison drama, you know, from the era. And I would say maybe like two minutes in, I was hooked. Yeah. And then by the end of it, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Like I, I cried during, I still cried during this movie. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. It has lost none of its impact for me over the last 25 plus years at all. Um, I've always loved it and I'm happy to talk about it today. Well, I'm happy that you're here to talk to me uh, about it uh, because look, we've got a lot to discuss. Uh, and look, we're not alone. Mel, mm. these walls here are funny and so are you. Please introduce yourself and tell us when you first saw Shawshank. Hi, this is Mel Barrel of Monkey Spunk Castle. Oh. Um, and I, are we not doing our episodes? We are, like we I, are, we are, yeah. was really looking forward to that. Um, I first saw Shawshank. It was definitely a, a dad shows this to you movie for me. Um, and similarly to Justin, I was very roped in very early. And it became the movie that then you ask people if they've seen it and if they say no you tell laugh them at to them. sit down and not no, go anywhere no. for two and a half hours. <laughs> um, laugh at them. <laughs> yeah, you laugh at them. <laughs> yeah. You say, fish, you say you're missing fish, out and you walk fish. away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, I was probably a teen and um, super into it. It, it uh, I was telling Justin yesterday that, you know, I turned it on, was kind of resentful of having to watch it, like, I don't know, probably the, for the 17th time for this mm-hmm. episode. And then as soon as the, like, piano and the soundtrack kicked in i was like oh my god i know yeah <laughs> my heart <laughs> yeah no it's a it's definitely it definitely hooks you in immediately um and we'll talk why we'll talk about why um look there's three of us here three is good trio is great you know three amigos but there is a fourth joining us in the yard today is a new transfer please introduce yourself fish fish uh my name is <laughs> My name is Rhett Miller. I'm a rock and roll singer, primarily for the band Old 97s. And um, I'm a big Stephen King fan, and I'm uh, glad to be with you guys in the yard. Well, oh, I'm sorry. My name is Rhett Volcanic Glass Miller. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Well, I'm glad we found you. Like, uh, Red finds the Because he has no business being in a main hayfield. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That is true. Uh, Rhett, when was the first time uh, you saw Shawshank Redemption? So I'm hoping that this fact makes me a good um, sort of test case. Uh, This movie came out in 1994. I'm a little bit older than you guys. I just turned 51 um, last week. So you don't look it, I will say. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So this movie came out when the year that the old 97 started and we immediately were going on tour. And so I was living in abject squalor. I had no cable. Uh, ergo no TNT. Um, this movie 
was one of those movies that throughout my life people would say you need to see it. And the crazy thing is I'm a big Stephen King fan. I loved Stand By Me. I'm not a film buff per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a big reader. Um, so I'd read uh, Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption, um, but I never saw the movie until in the like the last few weeks i showed it to my kids wow that's amazing yeah. wow and it was transformative and i immediately knew why the i understood the hype and it immediately became my favorite movie and it's um and of course yeah like you justin i cried and cried and um it's fantastic it's so great i'm yeah. i'm i so in a way i want to apologize for that but it just is what it is you know i was just a musician doing you know road dog stuff for the last 30 years <laughs> no i mean look that, that's no apologies great. please that is that's great i mean look we you know it doesn't matter when you find this movie i think whenever you do it's just it, it means something special you know you you said that you know you're a huge stephen king fan I, I will admit fully like i stumbled upon you being a stephen king fan by you by your revelation about this movie on twitter um you know when i saw it pop up i um you know i freaked out i was like oh my god we, we're looking for guests for shawshank this is perfect um and now it's even more perfect because i love the fact that we get to talk about this movie fresh for you you know um it's it's for for most people we talk it's it's like this you know like we we're saying like oh the dad you know the dad showed it to us or you know our friends sh- you know watched it over the years so being able to actually have that fresh take i think is really exciting but you said you're a stephen king fan and i want to know your stephen king origin story you know where, where did you first stumble upon his work it's so funny. Like, like, obviously, with you guys having devoted so much of your lives to talking about and diving into the world of Stephen King, he's he's more of a constant in my life than almost anything. When I was um, when I was about ten years old, I got an inner ear imbalance that put me in the hospital. Uh, I, I couldn't walk. Um, I was throwing up constantly. I got pulled out of fourth grade and put into um, a hospital in Dallas where I was growing up. And, um, it was, uh, it was, at first it was a novelty, like I was a kid in a hospital and then I was there for months. And so after a few weeks, I was just a kid in a hospital and your parents can't go spend every night with you because they both have jobs and lives. And, um, I couldn't walk. So every day a nurse would wheel me down to the hospital gift shop and I would buy, I did buy some really terrible, um, other writers works at the time, the, you know, the, whatever was paperback. Yeah. And, um, but boy, the Stephen King, um, books that I found, I devoured them and read them and reread them when I ran out in, in those, you know, dimly lit hospital rooms. Like, can you imagine being an 11 year old kid reading, you know, and this is 1981. So this, uh, this is like all new, the the early dark news. Yeah. So, um, so he was he was there. Uh, I got better. Spoiler alert. And um, uh, but I've but I've stuck with him. I did fall. I, I did get to a place where I wasn't interested in reading things that were um, horror, like the mm-hmm. the har- the horror I was I was kind of out on. But um, the the thing about Stephen King that I think so many you know non super fans overlook is that he's just he's our greatest writer. He's mm-hmm. not just a horror writer. You know, I think um, his new one, Billy Summers, is, you know, one of the best books he's ever written. And not just because he name drops the old 97s yeah. in it. <laughs> well, I, I and I agree with you on that because I, I was kind of blown away by that book. He's just, he does this where, you're right, he is one, you know, one of the, just the greatest writers of all time in the sense that, like, 
you know, he's 40 years into his career and he's still knocking out career best stuff. I mean, like 11, 22, 63 is incredible. Billy Summers did just was a total left hook this summer for me. Um, and I did want to ask you about the name drop because did you know ahead of time or were you just reading and you just stumbled upon it and just like, we're like, holy shit. <laughs> I had no, I had no idea. Although yeah. um, I have met him. Uh, we, I've, um, our, our circles overlapped the, to the extent where when he came up and did a thing at Marist college, I got to go hang out with him before the event. And when, of course, I was incredibly nervous, and um, and he's so disarmingly nice and kind and charming. And uh, when I walked up, he was autographing books, and he stood up and he started singing one of my songs to me oh by way by God. way of greeting. Yeah, he just he started going, "What's so great about the Barrier Reef?" And I'm like, "Oh <laughs> my God, what is, what is even happening?" Um, but it was great. It was everything you could hope for. I mean, it's the, when they say don't meet your heroes, they don't know Stephen King. Uh, yeah. I mean, one it's, day, one day. Yeah. We, we, we have a long joke here where he came to the college at FSU and, um, one of our co-hosts actually got to be in a class with them. And I only got to, we did a signing or did a signing and walked up to him and I froze. Like you're saying, it's just, I, I was just like, uh, thanks for the nightmares. And I just walked away or whatever. And I, it was like something that sticks with me forever. And I just like, I hate the fact that that was the only thing I fucking said. Uh, but Mike, um, that could have gone so much worse. I think, you, oh, yeah. I think you should be grateful. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not as bad as when I, uh, went to, to meet John Glacier after like a show at the hideout and I, and he had been doing subway commercials and I was like, Hey, uh, <laughs> thanks a lot. Um, you know, I'm trying to quit carbs or whatever. And I just, like, Oh what? my God. Oh, <laughs> And I walked away and I was just like, I was just like, all right, I want to go jump into fucking traffic right now. But anyway, look, it would have been funny if you told John Glazer, thanks for the nightmares. Yeah. Thanks again. <laughs> it's, all, it's your go to out. Like, thanks for the nightmares. Uh, yeah. Well, no, that's amazing. I mean, I, I, I do love the fact that like King at heart is such a rock and roller. And I just, I get this sense, especially after reading like Lisey's story where he, you know, he always kind of brings a lot to himself and his writer characters. But in that book, he talks at great lengths about how Scott Landon loves listening to like rock and roll while he's writing. And I just imagine that's the case with him. And like, it, I had, knowing that, does it kind of charm your heart to know that like maybe while he was, you know, writing Billy Summers, he had been blasting the old 97s? You know, it wouldn't surprise me. I just finished my third reread, um, in this case, a re-listen to the audiobook of On Writing, the the greatest book ever written, slash the probably the best memoir. And um it's um it sounds like he loves to just blast rock and roll. To me, I think it would be weird to have lyrics happening while you're writing uh -huh. words. Like mm. I think it but um clearly he doesn't have any issue with that. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, uh, that's uh, uh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Well, we uh, first off, we gotta have you on again to talk more Stephen King because I, I I didn't know. I mean, we've, we're gonna be t talking about on writing next year, and I cannot wait to get to that book because I've only read like um, sections of it, and um, just because I've you know in in school for writing, I was just had heard that you know if you you know the book is a great resource, and so I've never read it front to back, so I'm just like dying to to knock that one out. Um, can I but. can I recommend an on writing? Billy Summers back to back because oh, okay. I I finished my reread of on on writing and went straight into Billy Summers and it feels like and I think I have a theory about this because they just did the 25th anniversary re-release of on writing 
um, which is great. It's got um, appendices at the end, uh, a piece that his son Owen wrote for The New Yorker that he reads, and then like this hour and a half long him and Joe, uh, Stephen King and Joe Hill event where they interview each other and answer questions. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, so the anniversary re-release is great, but I imagine that there was probably some work that went into the re-release of it. And it probably happened right before he was writing Billy Summers. This is just my theory. Um, Billy Summers is all about writing. And yeah. there were so, so many of the things he talks about in On Writing show up in that. I know we're not talking about that here, but maybe make a note because that the back-to-back of those two things is pretty great. And I could totally see that too. I mean, the thing that's so amazing about Billy Summers is that it when he does start talking about writing and, and immediately you're kind of like, Oh no, here we go. He's got another writer character, but it just brings so much pathos into that story. And you're just like, it really hits you hard. I mean, some of the most emotional gut punches that I've ever read on his book in any of his books are from just his introspection into writing. And I don't know, we, we talked a lot about it, like the themes of mortality with that book. Um, and you can kind of see he's wrestling with that, you know, in his age right now, but we got themes of mortality to talk about here. Slightly. Uh, we're going to be talking about Shawshank. Uh, so let's let's talk about the themes. I mean, look, they're pretty universal. Um, you know, there's hope. There's the larger metaphorical lessons of patience, perseverance, institution, institutionalization. I knew I was going to fuck that word up. <laughs> and most importantly, uh, friendship. But, you know, what do you all take away from this movie? Mel, wh- wh- what's the theme that you really get from this? I'm glad you mentioned friendship because I do think it is arguing that connection is what carries us through the hardest times in our life. And if you're doing hard time for life, (laughs) connection is what will carry you through. Um, Connection and vulnerability, because I think Red is so unwilling to be vulnerable because Mm -hmm. he thinks that hardening yourself is the way to endure prison. Um, And, it turns out that uh, no, it's not so much. I was really surprised. I remember having beef with the contrast between the novella and the book in that Andy's exceptionalism is is very tall tale-ish in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I noticed actually more of that seeping into the movie here. Like Andy really does kind of have to be a sort of cipher that we can project things onto. Um, there has to be this like new thing that enters into the prison atmosphere that that sort of teaches everyone an important lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he has to be this kind of quiet, weird dude. Um, and so I, yeah, I think it's also a willingness to, to let novelty and newness into the cracks of whatever routine, happy life you have built, whatever, whatever institutionalized nature has been enforced onto you. Um, you do have to kind of keep an eye out for newness. Like these are all things that I'm trying to get at beneath the, the big themes that I totally do agree uh, with you on, Mike. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I like the idea of uh, friendship being the fuel for which we endure because I, you know, we'll go into it as we're discussing. And that's why our- solitary is the the sort of biggest threat in life and in, and in this yeah. fictionalized prison. I will say though, if I'm in prison, solitary confinement's where I want to be. Um, don't really want to. I, I don't think there are. I don't think there are a lot of reds. I don't think there are a lot of reds there. No windows you know? too. Just, just yeah, but you know, no, it's all dark. I'm just imagining, and in, in, you know, in real life, they're more sisters than they are reds. Sorry, but um, Justin, what about you? Well, on that <laughs> optimistic note, <laughs> no, I, I, sorry. I, I think it still goes to to hope with me. And I know I always think about. I'm so grateful that grateful. Like I had anything to do with it. I'm very happy that. <laughs> 
I'm very happy that the final words in the novella are also the final words of the movie. Yeah. And it's about hope and everything. Hope is a good thing. Hope sometimes is a great thing, everything else. And, you know, not to get too personal, but I think over the last year and a half, especially being single and living in Chicago when it gets to be negative 10 degrees and nobody's going out to do anything, it was a pretty hard winter. And I think that, I mean, I know that life can be very hard and it's different levels for different people. Some people have it a little easier than others. I 100% understand that. I definitely have it easier, easier than other people, but I think holding on to hope is crucial to surviving anything. Um, and so for me, the theme, when I think of Shashik, I always think of, of hope, mm-hmm. 100%. Rat, what about you? One of the coolest things about the the accident of my not having seen this until I watched it this last month with my two teenagers um, after 18 months of lockdown uh, with them, like you're talking about, was, um, Justin, was was that I got to experience it for the first time, this movie, and with them, you know, sitting on a couch with them, like holding hands. And I hadn't seen it already. I wasn't only half invested because of, you know, familiarity. I wasn't looking at my phone. I was all in. And, and they're so jaded as teenagers are right they're so their attention span is so short and i'm i'm not saying that my kids are terrible my kids are literally <laughs> the best kids in the world it's a safe um, space yeah but they but you know they are there they live they have tiktok t- uh, attention spans but for this they sh- they shut everything down and they watched this and we talked about it we sat there we didn't move for an hour after the movie and talked about it so yeah the the idea of connection um the idea of hope you know, read as this character who is hopeless, um, who, you know, in, in many ways embodies hopelessness. And then um, and then when you get Andy showing up and, you know, and complete beam of light, hopeful guy, although it gets buffered throughout. One thing that I keep coming back to in this is uh, King, uh, you know, in the from from the source material, his use of art and books and music as sort of this manifestation of connection. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I see this throughout his oeuvre, right? Is that you, the things that we make are our um, fighting back against the void. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the these books represent m- meaning, you know, this music represents this transcendence of, um, you know, humanity. Like we can, we can make something beautiful, and it brings us all together. Yeah. And and there's that great scene where after he gets out of the hole, and he says to Red, "What is it? I, I wrote it down. Uh, it makes you forget there's places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside they can't get to, they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. I love that. Yeah. So yeah, but for me, I've devoted my life to music, and I, and I, it's not like I. It's not like I trick myself into thinking that it's some truly noble thing. I'm not curing cancer, you know, but but it is it it gives me certainly meaning. You know, it 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 keeps the the void at bay. And I like the way Stephen King uses this in 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 this in the in the novella. You know, uses music and the books and the the library as it gets bigger and bigger and the sort of the hope that goes into every letter that he writes to try and get the library going. Anyway, that yeah, I love this. No, I I think I think that's dead on for me. Living, 
you know, I wanted to bring up the idea of like the get busy living, get busy dying. Right. And I think that's kind of exactly what you're discussing in the sense that like, what is living, but there's more to living than just waking up, eating and going to bed. It's, 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 it is pop culture and it is living in that culture, experiencing that culture and, and what is culture, but creation and what we've created and what we've been able to share in that creation. And when you take that away, you are dying. You're ultimately dying, even if you are living day to day. And I think for me, that's something that really hit hard watching it now, especially after the pandemic, because I mean, I not to get too morbid and maudlin here, but there are certainly times last year, especially given just how, where I was, you know, what I was doing with work and everything else, like where I was like, what are we doing this for? Like, what am I doing? Like, like I can't, like, we're just going to wake up every day and I'm just going to like turn on this and it's, we're not seeing anyone. We're not doing anything. And especially as what Justin was saying, when it's like negative 20 degrees and there's nowhere to go and life is kind of like the movie Brazil, we're all like eating outside in 20 degree weather, like not the happy having, ending version. Yeah. Not the happy ending of Brazil either, but just like fucking miserable. And like, I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I think a lot of it really is that like, to live is to experience together. I mean, to bring up another book that kind of reminds me of this is like the ending of Into the Wild, um, the the John Krakow novel that um, Sean Penn uh, directed uh, into a movie. And like the ultimate takeaway of that is that living, you know, the best way to live is to share that experience. And like, I think that's something that really hits home with me. I agree, Rhett. Um, that's, that's, that's really what I've kind of taken away from this um, for, for sure that, you know, there is hope is part of that sharing experience, but I also you... love that you, sorry, oh, can go, I just say, I love ahead. that you brought up watching it with your, with your teens, because I do think it's not exactly an intentional thematic element of the film, but for me, this film functions in life as a sort of loophole to emotional repression. Like you, you put it on in front of people that you want to watch it with because the universality of, of its affect is, is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they call it a guy cry movie and that doesn't mean it's for guys. Although I do think it's masculine veneer is a way into that positive con. Like it's Mm -hmm. like, we're all going to feel something, get ready. Uh, And that to me is like a huge element of its appeal. Yeah. It is interesting to note that like the, the the only females in this movie are like on posters, right? Other than the flashback. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, that's interesting. Um, Well, I mean, there's not a lot of room for there isn't. I mean, it's prison, so I guess yeah, it's not like they're (laughs) going to have like conjugal visits and stuff, uh, you know, in the in this, especially in this prison where it's you know highly religious. There is a woman on the parole like hearing at the end, which is a nice little nod to like oh, a hint of progressivism. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's right. But isn't the the only line spoken by a woman is that make sure he double bags that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Last time your man didn't double back. Yeah. Because I don't it. even think his wife gets a line in the movie. It's just other than you know, a lot of smooching. Yeah. yeah. A lot yeah. of smooching. A lot of. <laughs> lot of um, Save it for uh, pound cake. Yeah, on. that's true. Well, I, I wanted to talk just real quick before we go to our next section about the, the get busy living, get busy dying. Like, what does that mean to you? Is it just tie into exactly what the themes you were just discussing? Or do you take it as something different? Can you apply it to something else? I imagine you can really apply it to creation when it terms to, you know, comes to writing music. It could apply to, I imagine, athletes, <laughs> you know, that's like sitting there and that, that you know, game three or game four. Um, what, Justin, what do you what do you make of that? that and how does it apply to your life on a day to day basis? Well, I think you could look at it in like the grandest scheme of things of, you know, you've got to be extremely, you should be driven. You should be driven. Don't just sit on your hands and let the world go by. You know, that's like the grandest way of looking at that, that phrase. But for me, I think it's just, 
it kind of ties back to hope too. Like you gotta just keep, you gotta keep moving, and that's for me living is just you gotta keep moving. Not just like you said earlier, Mike. Not just eating and you know breathing in and out, but like being active mm-hmm. somehow, and whatever that means to you. Being engaged and active in whatever it is, whether it's in pop culture, the greater news of the world today, the greater events of the world today, because otherwise you are just letting yourself become numb to everything and just kind of a lump on on our spaceship Earth. I feel like you've been taking that out of effect big time since the pandemic's over. I feel like you've been going out more. I think this is the most I've seen you go out since like when you first moved here. I know. I read (laughs) fifty books during the during before we were vaccinated in May. From so it was like fourteen months or fifty books. Yeah. Not to mention, I cannot sit still. I I have not. I've been able to finish a book over the last four months because I'm just ready to move. Yeah. We were not allowed to move. Well, we could have moved, but it wasn't the best thing to do. So I was very (laughs) still. And then it was just kind of like Andy emerging from the sewer and in the rain. I mean, that's how I felt a couple yeah. months ago. And I can still feel the shit now with everything going on. But <laughs> once again, you got to have hope, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's well, right. you're also dismissing the fact that not only did you read, you know, 50 books, but you watched every Simpsons episode. I did. I, <laughs> wow. I, would, I was yeah. working from home. So every day I work from home and on my lunch break, I would watch two episodes of The Simpsons starting last June. And then... Yeah, I watched them all, two a day. And I'll tell you what, it, it did help time go by. Because you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm through season three. So that means I'm a, we're about 10% to the vaccine. Okay, you're so okay. mathematical. Like, now this we're 20% like, to the vaccine. We're 30% It's a good thing that vaccine. worked out for you, Justin. I know, it, was, it really did. You're like fucking like, Andy with the hammer, just like, like sitting there. <laughs> no, but but my, my optimism would have been like, well, I guess I'll watch it all again. <laughs> what if you, what if we did go into lockdown again and you're like, all right, I'm just going to double down and rewatch the entire. No, I've got, have had I'm, to I'm, I'm going to family guy. It would have been awful. Oh my uh, God. Lord. I don't know if I would have been able to make it through. I'm going to have to fire up like Futurama though. That's what I would do. Yeah. Cause yeah, I do love sense. a lot of Futurama. I just haven't yeah. seen the whole thing. But, yeah. Uh, Rhett, what about you? <laughs> what, what do you make of the, the get living, get busy living, get busy dying for yourself on a day to day? Uh, um, you guys keep it real on here. You guys talk about traumas in life and yeah, stuff. Totally. Um, I so when I was a teenager, I had a pretty serious suicide attempt and I um I wrestled a lot with depression. I ended up getting um good eventually getting some good therapy and a good therapist that stuck with me for a number of years and I found music, you know, so I started writing songs and doing gigs and um, and then the community around music. Um, I had always been a kid who was obsessed with books and only wanted to read books. And as much as books, just like in you know Brooks's library and and eventually uh, Andy's library in the prison, books represent like an escape, you know, a, a hatch to the real world. Um, you know, it's it's too solitary. It's like what Justin's describing. You know, yeah, you can read fifty books and it alleviates the loneliness and kills the time, but you. You know, there's a sometimes it, it emphasizes the loneliness. Mm. So for me, um, when I discovered music and the idea that I could, you know, actively work against um, the sadness, the loneliness, the depression by making up songs, singing songs for people, dancing, you know, in a perfect world, uh, entertaining them. And um, and so that has really been like the last you know 35 years of my life and and it's that i think in the absence of that i would be sleeping a lot which i think is what a lot of people do you know and that's 
that's why I think it's such a harbinger or at least um, a symptom of depression or whatever. Um, So I think for me, it's kind of the opposite. When I wake up in the morning, I have a hard time going back to sleep, even if I want or have time to. Mm -hmm. I just I want to live. I want to I want to get busy living. So that's for me, that ends up being, you know, driving the kids to and from soccer and then writing a song and then doing the dishes and the laundry. And and I know that sounds mundane, but I I love it. No, I love. Yeah, no, it's the day to day. Sometimes you get in that groove. It's great. It's there's nothing better. There's nothing better. Mel, what about you? I guess to me, it it, it reads as a mantra against complacency. Like it it is it mm-hmm. is all about um, choosing. Like Justin said, activity or change or or something that will be propulsive. Um, because it really is a sort of bid to, you know, if you're not getting busy living, you better get busy dying, which to me is like, you know, don't go into the routine. Like if, if you're not going to live, like, I don't know, I guess make some choice that's going to direct you back to living or just give up. Like it's a very, there's a dark slant to it for me now. There is. Um, yeah, yeah. In that, in that it's like, yeah, you kind of have two choices um, and both are actually better than, than robotic complacency and getting accustomed to tedium and boredom um so and i and i think that you know that's different things for different people to me like reading now would be very like propulsive or inactivity but i will i will also echo what people have said in that like in identifying perhaps the foremost value of my life and thinking to myself like why do i write even though it is an incredibly solitary activity and i like that about it I, i i'm not a collaborative writer i need to be like alone working um, it is connection. It is the idea that maybe someone somewhere will pick up something that you've written and part of it will just resonate in their body or in their mind and you will feel um, that is why that's also why I read. Right. We read to get that click moment of like someone understands someone has mm-hmm. accessed and articulated an experience for which I didn't have words previously. Um, and it is all about making these like little linkages that might not even be acknowledged on both sides, which I'm sure is also true of the, of the music too. Like, um, you know, it's not like you can see everyone who's suddenly connecting, but you kind of know it's happening in a, in a woo sense. <laughs> like that is, this is getting pretty woo, but that's how I feel about art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of a mix within all three. I feel like with this, because I, I'm a workaholic. Um, I don't really know what to do if I'm not working. Um, and I think that's kind of falls into the whole idea of get busy, you know, living. And for me, living is just creating, creating, doing, working, even when I'm just kind of chilling and relaxing, I'm still doing things. Like, I don't know how to stop that. I guess my difference. Yeah. In that sense, I just have to keep swimming. But like what you're saying with that complacency, I think also kind of falls into the the themes of the, the other theme of the movie, which is like institutional, there's a fucking word again, <laughs> institutionalization um, in that, you know, so much of the of work can sometimes become, you don't realize that it's chipping away at yourself. Um, that, you know, you might be happy and complacent in the sense that, all right, well, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. So mentally I'm thinking, Okay, well, things are fine because I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Totally. And but God, that happened during the pandemic. Like after the pandemic, oh, yeah. am I the only one who was like, you emerge from it and you're like, wait, what do I like? Who am I? <laughs> oh, no, totally. Oh, God, yeah. I, Absolutely. It's a reboot, you know? It was totally. I, 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 and I think that's what I've kind of taken away from this watch and this read is that, like, you got to do that. I, for me, I got to keep doing that, but I have to have that feeling that Andy feels when he's like outside of that pipe. 
at the mm-hmm. end of that work or when he's at, you know, um, you know, when he's sanding the boat, <laughs> not saying I need to go find some fucking, you know, beach and sit there. It does and look boat, like that's, that's a great time sanding that boat. But, but I love, I love what he's wearing. I love his hair. It's all sandy. <laughs> it's great. But tan, for me, you know. spiritually, that's what I need to feel in, in, in order to justify that busyness that I was discussing. Totally. And it's like sanding a boat, you know, might even seem to some people like a tedious activity, but I think you can find the get busy living joy in, in any mundane thing that like, like what you were saying about, uh, Rhett about like, just kind of like going through life and doing what needs to be done in the home even is like, I don't know. That's very satisfying to me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, but you're right at the end with that controversial, perhaps, um, shot as they, you know, where they close the, where they button it up and have him have, uh, have red walk across the beach. Andy's not just sitting on the beach. Mm-hmm. I know we're skipping to the end. I'm sure we were no, no, it's fine. It's on, totally but, fine. <laughs> but he's he's not just sitting on the beach drinking a mai tai. He's not do. He's not just laying on a beach dying. He's like working. You know, yeah. it's it's the equivalent of digging a, a little bit every day in the wall. He's like sanding the boat. I love that. I hadn't even thought of that. Well yeah, done. it's great. It's great. Well, I got some great news. Um, mm-hmm. All I was persistent in writing all those letters to the state, and I got to say they paid off. Uh, because there's a huge package of books waiting for us in the Brooks Hatlin Memorial Library. Count Monte Crisco. That's Cristo, you dumb shit. <laughs> By Alexandre Dumas. Dumas. <laughs> Dumas. You know what that's about? Huh? You like it. It's about a prison break. We'll be able to file that on the educational too, aren't we? All right. Well, did you uh, change it for this episode? I did change it for this episode. It's usually the Dairy Public Library that we discuss the background of this movie, but we're changing it because uh, for our, our boy Brooks, uh, tough tough spell for Brooks here in this movie. But um, hey, you know it's a it's a great turn of events for Brooks because in the book he's get, he gets a, a one minor graph, um, quite a horrific backstory for him also. Um, oh. Whereas whereas this he's. Kind of a kind gentleman. He looks like the bird he has. I, I kind of love him. Like he's just lovable in that sense. But um, look, I'm gonna do a real quick rundown, uh, and I'm gonna discuss a little bit about Frank Darabont because we got to talk about Darabont too. But um, let me give a rundown of what's going on uh, behind the scenes of this movie <laughs> 28 years ago. Um, so it was directed by Frank Darabont, screenplay by Frank Darabont, cinematography by Roger Deakins, music. By Thomas Newman, release date September 10th, 1994, at TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival. And if you want to hear some uh, insufferable takes of uh, the film festival, you could go follow a bunch of film Twitter uh, writers where they, they just hyperbole every day. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. It's happening right now. No. Uh, I'm just joking. It's all great. Uh, get, so busy t- tweeting, you know. <laughs> get busy tweeting. Get busy tweeting. Oh, no. Get those pull quotes. Uh, but then it was open wide on September 23rd, 1994. Uh, it had a budget of 25 million. The box office was 58 million, but that's right now because upon release, this was considered a flop. This is kind of a nice little trip to um, the past. So it had a wider release on October 14th, 1994. So it expanded to like a total of um, only 944 theaters and it earned $2.4 million, which means it finished number nine. And this is really going to be a way back when uh, machine. It went behind sex comedy Exit to Eden, which I love to oh, reference all wow. the time. <laughs> you it, really do. And uh, and, I, and it was just ahead of uh, the historical drama, which is also underrated, Quiz Show. Um, 
It uh, closed in late November of 94 after 10 weeks with only 16 million. It was considered a bomb. Did not recoup uh, its budget, but it got nominated for a shitload of Academy Awards. Um, the and which was the like which was kind of unheard of because for a King adaptation, prior to this, they really had only been getting a screenplay nomination for Stand by Me. And then well, I remember what Carrie got a couple of nominations. Carrie got a couple of nominations. Yeah, and, and then well, and, and then Kathy Bates won, and Kathy Bates won for Rob Reiner, which hey, some connective tissue here. Um, so was it a case of reception? Critical reception was positive, just not a lot of people went to see it. So yeah, so they, they they've debated a lot about this, and I think ultimately what most agree is that the sh- the title and <laughs> was, was a little like hard because a lot of all the co stars talk about how everyone would come over to them and be like, hey, the Scrimshaw Redemption, or you know the um, some would even go to like to Tim Robbins be the Hudsucker Redemption or something like that. That's right. Weird, weird titles. I don't know. I think the title is pretty great. I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. What do you? What do you think, Rhett? If you're walking by, did you? Did, did the title, you know, not sell you for all this time, or what, what's the? Listen, you know? Michael, I, I'm in a band called Old Ninety Sevens, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much you know about marketing, but the word "old" is anathema <laughs> yeah. to good marketing. So. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, clearly, I'm not the right guy to ask about this. Although I will say that once you get past, if you can survive, if the if the product that you're selling, like the great music of my band, Old 97s, is uh, is of high enough quality that you can survive the obstacle of a bad name, then maybe that bad name becomes something of a virtue over time mm-hmm. because it's weird and it sticks in your ear and... And it just it stands out. Like, what if this had been called like "Hope in Hope oh. Behind Bars"? Yeah. Or oh something? my God. Andy and the Slammer. Andy and the Slammer. That's oh right. My God. Like uh, the pitch meetings. How about Andy and the Slammer? Oh, really? When we signed to Electra Records in '95 after two indie albums, they tried so hard to convince us to change our name to the New. 97s. The new night. Oh my God. <laughs> That's like harder crazy? to say. Well, it would have been like Jefferson Airplane to Jefferson Starship, you know, the evolution of the name, of course. Yeah. Well, honestly, the new doesn't even work that great either, just because, like, I mean, look at the new Radicals. They had one song and then that was it, right? On Electra so, Records. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, oh. for, interesting. Oh, some linkage there. I wonder if they were the old Radicals at one point. <laughs> they were. Greg Alexander was like, <laughs> well, fine, we'll do it. Uh, well, look, it got nominated for Best Picture. Best Actor for Morgan Freeman. Uh, sorry, Tim Robbins. Uh, best Adapted <laughs> Screenplay. Best Cinematography. Best Film Editing. Best Sound. Jeez. And Best Original Score. Didn't win a single one of them. <gasps> Not a single one. But here's the thing. One Great of the year. toughest years for Great Oscars. Year. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, but look, I, I got a little bit more to go on here. Um, as we know now, obviously people love this. You know, I, I feel like this is the the thing. The tables turned for this movie, and it was post Oscar because you'd think, you know, with the Oscars, they re released it, and still people didn't come out. <laughs> so it's like, all right, well, something's not working. But what the ma- name is know, so bad. <laughs> there's two two words that made this 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 uh well actually three words uh separately. One word, big chain blockbuster. Uh, in '95, mm. this was the number one video uh, rental, which is pretty great considering '95 had some. Some big blockbusters then, you know. Um English Patient had just come out. No, oh okay. Lord, give me a break. Uh I, I, I side with Elaine Bennis on that one. Um but uh <laughs> two words that really made a big deal and dent for the legacy of this movie. Uh Ted Turner. Because mm. he uh, at the time he was trying it's hard to believe, but TNT was just kinda 
uh, getting ready and getting going. And he needed content. And the only thing they really had were um, pretty much the the <laughs> MGM's uh, pre-1948 film library. So I don't think in like 96 or 95, they're like, oh yeah, come watch this talkie uh, at, at four o'clock. So he wisely uh, purchased uh, pretty much he purchased Castle Rock Entertainment. So you get pretty much everything at that point, including Seinfeld. Um, but what he got was Shawshank, and he just played it. This was why he just he was like, "Let it ride, let it ride." Which is why, like, honestly, like, it's one of the most probably one of the most watched shows on television because I mean that's how I caught it. I mean, I literally just caught it by stumbling on it. Do they um, cut a lot? Yeah, it was on. It, they didn't cut too much. It's it, because the thing is, like, you know, there's not that much you really have to cut for this movie. Um, Even for time, though, I think it was they would because usually in movie blocks on TNT or wherever at the time it would be two hours. Yeah, so they would have to cut stuff down. But I feel like when that was on, it would be like a, a three-hour showing. Oh so yeah, you'd have everything in it plus all the commercials. They really weren't cutting much, and I don't remember there. You know, there's really not a lot of even language that you have to really cut out no really think about it it's i not, mean it's, I know it's rated r because he Brown is so creative with this swearing he yeah. is he well he and, and even like the stuff with the sisters you don't really see anything so it's kind of no. like you know it's insinuated granted you know i'm not really sure i would want like a 10 year old to stumble upon that but um i mean i did so it didn't really <laughs> matter <laughs> it turned out great um but uh, I, I actually think this is one of the reasons why i never really owned it I mean, did any of you own it? Like, I own you know? it. I, oh, so you did the have it? The disc is like, corrupted. I tried to watch it on the oh, disc so you watched yesterday. It, it didn't times? work, and I had to watch it on HBO. <laughs> I'm certain I had it on, on Blu-ray at, at some point. I haven't bought a Blu-ray in God knows how long, but I'm, I'm certain I owned it, definitely. I just I, I, It just felt for me, I, I, I want to say, like even during the DVD boom, I never had it. Um, and I think it was just because it was always on. Like, I mean, it was, it's in the same thing happens with Darabont's other movie, the green mile. Cause that is always on AMC, but, um, anyway, lives on big time and, you know, has a 91% of Rotten Tomatoes, which is the same as stand by me. And I know you love Metacritic, Justin, but it has a fucking 80 on there. Like, I think that's ridiculous. Well, like, 80 is pretty good for Metacritic though. That's like a the new Lord or the, the new Lord album, which by the way, is not very great has Uh-oh. a higher rating um, than, oh, no, not Lord. It, the new Billie Eilish album, which I also don't like because <laughs> pop has failed me this, this summer, but they, that has a higher rating than Shawshank Redemption. Just yeah. But an 80 on that is, is like an eight out of 10. There's a curve. That's a pretty good score. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. 91 uh, let's let me go on my diatribe about rotten tomatoes one <laughs> oh, more no, time here we go <laughs> a fresh rating on rotten tomatoes can be a c plus yeah that's true so you could have a hundred people give a movie a c plus and it gets a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes doesn't mean anything it means nothing yeah well i agree with the 91 percent. i'd probably go 98 90 maybe not maybe 100 percent on rotten well, tomatoes don't spoil your noses we're gonna I know, I know, I can't respond. But and anyway, critics, I definitely give it a fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Certified well, fresh from Justin. Yeah, C-plus. check mark. Uh, but I would say the thing that really ultimately sent this movie over the edge, and I'm, I kind of teased it and, and joked about it earlier, is IMDb, because that's a crowdsourcing thing. Granted, you know, IMDb is everyone can go and rate it, but the fact that like Shawshank Redemption has toppled over like the expected classics. You know, like Citizen Kane, Godfather, The Matrix, the, the Matrix. Yeah, don't well, tell no, me. No, I mean, I really, dead. The Matrix, because I just feel like well, generationally now the crowd that is on IMDb, like yeah. they probably would go for The Matrix over Citizen well, Kane. Whenever people say, I, I'm always very. I've never against, seen Citizen you know, Kane. I should. Oh, I should it's, it's 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 a 
Guess what? I hear I, it's you know, great. I give it a fresh also in Rotten Tomatoes. Pretty good. Yeah. Certified fresh. Um, that doesn't gain. This is the example. Whenever people, whenever I always lament, you know, box office returns being a success or a red, I'm sure you've had to deal with, well, how many records did it sell? Does that mean it's good or bad? You know, that the numbers don't mean anything. But I feel like the one time the people got it right was loving the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Like, I, the crossover appeal is is pretty fascinating to me. That's but that's like I agree, but I also think that that crossover appeal, like it's, like it's just the most epic normie movie of all time. <laughs> like <laughs> that's what it is, and that it's a crowd pleaser. Like I I love it. There are parts of it that I have issues with, but like it's it's the most middle brow normie normie legendary film, and like that makes sense that it would be at the top of. Yeah, IMDb. but I think, and I also the whole normie thing. I I don't understand how people go against the whole well. Just because a lot of people like this means it's like a it's a lame take to like it. No, like I, hate I, the, I hate the contrarian take on stuff, and this has been going on for years now. I'm just sick of it. Well, I, I think that's I think what Mel's saying is like it, it's actually kind of like um, it's like uh, uh, it, it well God, what, I'm, I'm missing the word to it. Um, it's immune to the the sort of contrarian take. Like I don't know if anyone really can watch this movie and just come in with a take being like, ah, this movie actually sucks. Like what are you gonna say? Like what what is the argument for saying that this movie sucks? Like, I mean I could I could I mean anyone could find reasons and stuff and I'm sure they could say, oh it's Serpy and you know Yeah, we'll get into I'll get into that shortly. <laughs> okay, great. Well either but- way um I, I, I will say that with with this that I, I think is interesting is that I think it kind of becomes the same type of movie that you we kind of assume is going to be in the top 10 list like and you look at like the legacy for a lot of the movies that are in those top 10 movies and they kind of have the same legacy as Shawshank like Citizen Kane was not a fucking hit upon release like it was it, it didn't win best picture <laughs> like it kind of it's the same same way that you know Shawshank didn't and now years later we consider it one of the greatest movies of all time um same thing with it's a wonderful life like dower like people did not like that at, at, when it first came out and then all of a sudden it's like the classic movie to watch like i don't think anyone re- rarely does a christmas go by where the majority of people don't watch it so i feel like they kind of hit that universal mindset that just transcends time in, in space like I, I just think it's always going to be there like people can watch this and just and take something away from it and i think there's a power to that that maybe a lot of its competition from that time didn't have. Maybe and again, just- I, th- I think it is the balance between the hard presentation and the gushy center. It is it is very much like, it's not a shameful thing to love Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Even though it is a movie about like hope and friendship and like the fact that it's about a man's prison just gives it enough gritty cred for people to be like, Oh yeah, like Shawshank. But really what you love about it is like it makes you cry. And so mm-hmm. like it makes sense to me that that sort of again just like just like smuggling the emotional content in there is is what elevates it in for so many people. Yeah. Rhett, what do you what, why do you think that this is uh why do you think this is at the top of IMDb's <laughs> 250? Uh what, what do you think appeals for especially having just watched it? Um it, it well, it holds up. It in in a way that like it that same year Forrest Gump came out. Yeah, Forrest Gump is is a joke now. Like if I sat down and watched Forrest Gump <laughs> with my kids, they would be so pissed off. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. You're right about this, and I think it really goes back again to the source material. I mean, I think Frank Darabont did a great job figuring out how to make this a Hollywood package. But um, it's that thing that that Stephen King does where 
there's just a lot going on at once. There's um there's a lot of layers, you know, mm-hmm. to the to the cake. And um, but yeah, I feel like Mel's exactly right. You know, it's it's like, oh my god, yes, yeah. so then he's in the hole for like three months and then he gets raped repeatedly. Um, but you know, I'm I'm really just thinking about like at the end when like these two friends reunite and you get all choked up. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I think one of the reasons why this movie has endured is you're you just said it like it's episodic you know like when you think about what is the success of netflix and what is the success of like a lot of you know like the stranger things or the shows that drop all at once it's that you can go from one parable to the next and it keeps hooking you in and you know i think shawshank is that same way like if you know the film you know what's coming next if you have a vague recollection the movie is so damn good at hooking you into the next story that you're going to sit there and watch it and i think that is the reason why the movie has consistently just endured as you know like this rewatchable movie that again and again and again no matter how many times you've seen it you're just going to go back into it that's that's the second component for me mike is is i think that so many films could learn about storytelling from Shawshank like it's it's so beautifully paced the way that it doles out packets of information throughout and like little reveals all the time makes the end reveal of how the escape worked so satisfying um and I think it's just like shows such knowledge of how people want to watch movies (laughs) and how people want a story told to them um you, you can't quite it, I struggle to think of a better movie that sort of pulls off storytelling in the way that it does. It's so neat. There's not a wasted moment, and yet it also can take its time. It knows how to take its time so that it's not wasted, if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, it's Darabont does it again and again. Like, watching this movie, I was thinking of his other two films. Because I, look, hot take here. I think The Majestic's actually a pretty good movie. I think people did You know, I, I, I walked out on that. I- <laughs> Certified Fresh. I still haven't, you know, I got to say splat. I, uh, uh, I, 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 but I also love dramatic Jim Carrey more than comedic Jim Carrey, even though, Hey, look, I I love his smoking performance in the mask, but, um, you know, I I just think it was a, Mel, you talked about kind of like the syrupy stuff, elements that can be found in Shawshank. I just feel like the syrup was overloading. It uh, it does. It was was no restraint. Yeah, I agree. Because, well, here's here's a question I have on that note, because that episodic structure he does again in The Green Mile, which, to be fair, is an episodic narrative anyway, because it was all serialized novels. But he also does it if you think about it in The Mist, because The Mist, you can break down into section after section, too, with based on, you know, what's happening within the supermarket at that point, you know, so I, I feel like narratively in his head. He's kind of always worked that way. It's I, such a I, it's such a back to basics but effective approach of like what act are we in? What happens in this yeah. act? And it's really effective. Yeah. Was there something about him being obsessed while making this movie with um what's the Scorsese movie? Oh, Goodfellas. Yeah. 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 Like he was he would go every day at the end of dailies and like rewatch Goodfellas to make sure he was doing Shawshank. Right. Like, I would never have that thought that. That is so funny because they are so different. Like, Goodfellas is very meandering and loose in a way that Shawshank is not. They're both great. But, but if you think about it, Goodfellas is episodic in structure, too. I mean, there's It like is, the, but the episodes like, are just, like, not it's as It's more neat. stream of consciousness. Oh, yeah. no, totally not. I mean, they're... they're <laughs> not to their from, detriment. Like, <laughs> Well, they're from the mind of, like, a cokehead. <laughs> like, well, I think because know? both take place over, especially Goodfellas, mostly over about 20 years or so, with mm-hmm. the takeaway of the childhood. But it's not like every time a year advances, it says... 
now we're in 1963. Now oh, we're God. in 1968, like so many movies would do. Like the Irishman. Just by the time it's over with, you realize how much time has gone by. I think yeah. it's a real thing about the, the connection between both of those. And they all movies. still look exactly the same as they yeah. did at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, like me. So I've got a little salt and pepper now. You know, a little <laughs> salt and pepper. Uh, which, to be fair, I, I, I don't know. I, I actually like the subtle use of, of makeup here. Like, I, we, were ta- we were joking yesterday about like House of Gucci, that new movie with by oh, Ridley God Scott, and how like the makeup looks ridiculous in that. And like, even, you know, I just joked about The Irishman. And I believe the 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 transfer of time in Shawshank with the little subtle things they do than in any of the things that happen in The Irishman, yeah. or what probably will happen uh, what's going on at the Gucci. But I want to go back to the the Goodfellas reference because he one of the things that that movie also helped him with was uh, basically coming to terms with narration because mm, you, yeah. you know at the time narration was uh, kind of passe and I guess it still is like I mean it's kind of slapped in the hands um, you know there's the whole great thing in, in uh, adaptation where um, Brian Cox's character is just like and if you use voiceover or narration God help you you know and and I think that with when he watched Goodfellas he learned the art of the voiceover so I guess my question is does this movie work if there's no narration? I was going to pose that same question because no. I, I think it's so hard to tell now. It's so, so the answer it's is no. It's unfair. <laughs> it doesn't know, work without I, well, it. Because I, I was like just thinking about scenes and sequences and bouncing around. And I also think the fact that it's Morgan Freeman narrating it too. Because maybe this doesn't work if somebody else is narrating it. I think the best lines in the movie are his narration. Like, I agree. I think it's... I I will say my beef is that the movie really breaks out of its own structure when I I don't think we need the opening of Andy sitting in the car with the bullets of Andy going to the court. It should start with Morgan Freeman being like, "There's a guy like me in every like yeah, yeah like I there see that. I it, see that. there is no reason and in fact it contradicts the rest of what we see of Andy to start with him. We in fact yeah my argument is we should lean more heavily into the into the narration. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. It's it's like when. I always bring this up just because I'm from, you know, Melly the same way. We 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 come from writing um, workshops, and if I did, if we did something like that, that would be the first thing that they would tell us to cut out. It's like whenever we, whenever I talk about Dexter, the great Showtime Dexter, I always lose my mind because the whole fucking show is modeled with him being in his point of view, and yet you spend like ninety percent of the episodes in other people's point yeah. of view, so yeah, yeah, it yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I never thought about that with Shawshank. Yeah, you could you could cut out. I don't it want also to just jives better with with uh, Andy's mystique. Like I really cannot square the Andy that we see in that opening sequence with the Andy of the rest of the movie. But yeah, I, I, I uh, go for it, Rhett. I think there's something. There's like a Trojan horse thing happening with the protagonist of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's ostensibly it's Andy, but there's everything in in me feels like the protagonist is red. Like mm-hmm. red is the one who goes on the hero's journey. He's the one at the beginning who's hopeless. And at the end has hope, you know, everything we live through this movie is through him. And it's almost like the secret weapon of the movie. So, I mean, in the novella, it's all from his point of view as well. So I, I can't imagine it working without the voiceover. Cause that's, that's the inner monologue. That's the story he's telling, not just us, but himself. It's yeah. such a good point that red is the character that has an arc and Andy actually doesn't he he really yeah. doesn't because he's planning this escape the whole time like he doesn't change he just does what he set out to do like yeah there's it's interesting too because when you know darabon approached king 
about the idea of adapting this story, you know, King was like, ah, I don't know. I don't see how it could be a movie or whatever, you know, it's, ah. you know, but, ah. um, you know, he's like, oh yeah, uh, I don't see it being a movie, but, um, you know, you watch this, I mean, Darabont was insistent that he saw the movie in his head and he got it. And then you, you know, doing the deep dive on the research in this movie, there's a lot of fat that he cut out. And I, and I, and he talks a lot about it in the commentary about how, you know, he wanted to put more in this and you can kind of see that because he kind of gets his cake and eats it too with like green mile, which I feel is way too long. Um, I still love that movie, but I still think it's definitely a little too long. And that was going to be the case here. If you had his way, like, you know, the, the, in the beginning, those were supposed to be a more elaborate scenes with Andy and his wife, but they had to, you know, they only had a, a short amount of time and he had to prioritize like, all right, well, we got the star here. So let's shoot the stuff with the star. We'll do inserts with my hands. Like he's fucking, you know, Deborah Hill and and, and Halloween. Um, and so he's just sitting there and he's doing his own thing. And so they had to cut and chisel that down. Then there was more stuff with Tommy. Like they wanted to have Tommy with his wife and you didn't, and it's just, so you could tell he really wanted to build out more of that story. Like he enjoyed this world. And I don't, I, I think again, it's, it's the classic thing that you always hear about in pop culture where it's just like the forces outside his control made him make a better movie. And well, it I happens that, all that, the time. It kind of goes back to what Mel was saying about really trying to focus on red as the main character. Because if you start adding all these extra scenes with, mm -hmm. like you said, Billy and his wife and other yeah. people with other people that Billy? Red would have no... Oh, Tommy. Or, Tommy, Tommy. Sorry, Tommy, sorry. Tommy. Not, not Billy. I'm thinking, I got Billy Summers on the head now. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, true. Um, but Tommy, and you know, like then, then you really start to get away from the whole mm -hmm. crux of the, the storyline and, and, and how it's being presented, if you, if you do that. Yeah, there well, are episodes he, that revolve around a hub, and the hub is yeah, Red. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of want to see an edit now. <laughs> like constant listeners, if you're if you're good with uh, what what is the uh, Adobe Premiere that ages me. Um, I'm sure there's something else that's better, but that seemed to be pretty good in the '90s. Um, if you got a good, you got the good skills, make a Shawshank cut with the the red cut. You know, I want to see what it looks like. Where I don't know where you, where would you start? You just the narration, like with the the scope over the prison. It would just be you just be seeing Morgan Freeman in the yard, just looking at people. <laughs> <laughs> just no narration. Just like what the fuck's this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, which I guess, because I mean, I'd, I'd be remiss to not see Jeffrey Demond because I love him and when he's the. I was just gonna say, you know, you cut that prosecutor. That's the Jeffrey Demond Frank Darabont connection is. Broken. Yeah, but then you get like Demond is. Um, I don't know. Maybe be put him somewhere, somewhere else. else it's fine. Yeah. yeah, he could be Brooks. You know, like I love. I I know, he can't Brooks. be Brooks, but he can't be Brooks because I love that actor. But I mean, he could be a guard or something. It's fine. He'd be a guard. Yeah, he's hanging out with Clancy Brown. There you um, go. That makes that does make sense. All right. Well, look, I, I'm not going to get too deep into Darabont. I had this whole long diatribe about how he did it. But look, you just know no one thing. He was a King fan. He adapted the Woman in the Room which was uh, another dramatic work from King, which is from Night Shift, one of two dramatic works in that story. Um, so you can clearly tell that's probably what won him over to King, I feel. I wouldn't that, be surprised at all. Yeah. Um, he really wanted Castle Rock because he felt that, um, and there's some shared DNA here just because we did the Stand By Me episode. So I think it's kind of spiritually aligned that we're doing this episode here um, because he considered Castle Rock to get it right. And, and you know, Reiner really loved this script. And... He wanted to direct it himself, and he actually offered uh, Darabont like $2.4 million to $3 million reportedly to direct it himself. And Darabont really wrestled with this because, like, if you think about it, he really had nothing to his name other than just screenwriting credits for, like, you know, 
my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Dream Warriors. Um, and he also did the, the Blob with Chuck Russell. And, um, and you know, and he did some work with like Indiana Jones Chronicles and Tales from the Crypt. But like, this was a big deal. Like, this was his directorial featured de- directorial debut because he had done a TV movie at the time called Buried Alive. But this I was a big also, deal. Also, by the way, a good movie. It's good. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm not certified I've not fresh. Seen. Certified fresh. Uh, a smidge above the, the majestic. Mm. No, it's good. It's got Tim Matheson, Jennifer Jason Lee, and William Atherton. Oh, nice. Um, check, seriously, check it out. It's good. It was the a old, USA movie, I believe. And yeah. it's actually good, though. Yeah, it's good. So you could tell that he had an eye at that point. Yeah. Okay. Wasn't he well, hard to work with, though? Isn't there that, that well, story of them filming the, the playing catch scene like 80 times? Yeah, so the big thing with him was that as as the production came on, because like Reiner eventually relented, because he, you know, Darabont has a quote. He basically said, uh, "This is what he told Vanity Fair in 2014. He said, you continue to defer your dreams in exchange for money, and you know, die without ever having done the thing you set out to do.'" Clearly, he's in the head of uh, Andy or Red <laughs> when he's making this fucking movie. But um, so he does he does it, and I, I fucking love Rob Reiner, and I love Castle Rock Entertainment. I got the hat, everything. I'm all Castle Rock boy over here, but. Reiner doesn't act like an asshole like most of Hollywood would. He's just like, you know what? I I agree with you. Go do it. And he mentors the project and helps him on. Gives him $25 million to make this movie, which is pretty great for a fucking director that hadn't really proved himself yet. And it just was all built on the the foundation of the screenplay. But there were like little things that they did that kind of set things in motion. Uh, Tim Robbins comes on. Robbins was not the original choice. We'll talk about the casting in the next section, but like it was originally because Reiner really wanted uh, Harrison Ford and Tom Cruise, and obviously oh that didn't work. I know. Oh my God. Could you imagine this? this <laughs> I, I, look, I love both of those guys. I love both of them, but uh, no. I no. just, I, I just can't imagine the narration with Harrison Ford, like the Blade Runner, like, well, it would just be like uh, lack of days ago. Here we were, <laughs> just like I never knew a man like Andy Dufresne. <laughs> <laughs> noodles uh yeah cold noodles um just to just use blade runner temp tracks on there on the script the thing anyway they put a lot of things in place because they knew darabont you know it was a young filmmaker like cruz walked because he was like he was interested in the script but he would only want to do it with reiner because he didn't trust uh darabont and when robbins came on he insisted that they get roger deakins uh as a cinematographer to kind of um align him and when you listen to the commentary of this movie Darabont's pretty forthcoming with how he really, you know, he prepped it like crazy. He said, you got to be over prepped if you're going to do this. It's better to be over prepped than to not be because, you know, if you don't have any idea what you're doing, you're just going to be fucked. But he was really fluid with ideas. And like, so he took a lot of ideas from, you know, like Freeman. He took a lot of ideas from Robbins. Um, Deacons was instrumental for a lot of the different shots and takes because Darabont, like you were saying, Mel, he would just do take after take after take. And one of the most notorious ones is, you don't think about it, but it's like when they're on the prison yard and Robbins first comes to Freeman, he's pitching, not even really pitching that hard, but he's still pitching. And they did like fucking like, I think like 30 or 40 takes or something like that. And the the next day, like Freeman's arm was in a sling because they just they had to keep doing the throwing. I've, I've thrown my arm out before and uh, it's oh, hard to explain. Sports it. man. Yeah. What can I say? I've been there. I've been on the yard before. You know what I mean? I've been on my own yard. Oh my God. But uh, I can imagine the being older and and throwing out your arm like that. Ugh. Yeah. Even then, yeah. That's tough. He, so he, and, and think of it like this is new director too. So there was a, there were little scuffles here and there, but I mean, it wasn't enough where I mean we're not talking about like a Sean Young um situation. Anybody. You know. <laughs> Red, I want to ask you, are you when you recording, 
are you like Darabont here? Are you doing take after take after take, or is it just kind of a more Clint Eastwood thing where you're like, we got the take, we're going? Well, it's funny how that's changed over the years. Like even back in 94 when they made this movie, the the studio recording for music was still um, pre-Pro Tools, mm. right? So you weren't able to record things to a, a grid. You weren't able to fly things around. So now, um, like even yesterday, I was in a studio writing a song with somebody and I did, did just a quick demo of it. And then at the end, I, I said, uh, oh my God, it would be better if the chorus repeated uh, copy that, paste it after that last chorus, then we got a double chorus, whatever. Like five seconds later, the song structure is completely different. I didn't have to redo anything, re-sing anything. You look at the early days of the Beatles or Everly Brothers, the Everly Brothers, or even the Phil Spector recordings that they would make, Oof, they would yeah. get a, a room full of musicians. Then you'd have eight guitar players playing and you know the whole rhythm section, all these singers, although most of the vocals would go later, but he would have them do one song over and over and then by the end of the day they would get one take of it that was where everyone did their thing perfectly so yeah it's it's brutal and it's a beating the problem is that now because it's so easy to just do it shitty and then make it sound good nobody's ever doing it good does that make sense (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. so it's better if you get them to do it all day long and then really you have actual perfection rather than just manufactured glossed over shit yeah yeah i will say it it did backfire for darabont because (laughs) when they did the narration for freeman i guess they did it all in one take at some studio that was nearby um because you know the the shot in uh in, in in ohio um they just found some recording studio nearby a family recording studio and they had freeman go in and just record all his narration because they used it on set so they can get the pacing down for each shot and he said Freeman just did one take and it was great and they all wanted to use it except the quality of the recording wasn't good. <gasps> so they had to go back and then when he did have to go back to do it, it took Freeman three weeks because it just was like, all right, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to do this again. It got in his head. Um, wow. So, yeah. You know what they call that? They call that demo-itis where you fall in love with the demo and then the, ah. pr- the actual recording later never sounds as good oh, as the boy. shitty thing you did on the four track. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, Mel, you could relate to that with writing, right? Where you have like one draft. And you're no, like, then oh. it's just the idea is always better and you're never actually going to be able to translate it onto the page. <laughs> yeah. Writing's fun. Love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mel, you know, in sports, they call that having the yips. Uh, wow. You, 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 you really Explain think you got more down, sports things to me, man. And then you got to throw in. No, I'm just kidding. Well, look, you said the yips, uh, Justin, and uh, I think we got to talk about the the yips and the yaps, the taps and the snaps. Mm. Um, Let's talk about the music because without it, I don't know. I mean, I don't. It's as essential as the narration to me. The music is like, I can't even talk about it. I know it's so good. I so I made this joke when we were doing Stand by Me last week, last month, and it's kind of takes takes from uh, David Wayne, but like you can kind of see the music as a character here. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's the third lead I heard. Yeah. Not just the prison, but the music, both of them. I don't think I. I just this movie doesn't work without Thomas Newman. I. It's like it's so instrumental. Literally, literally, yeah. What are your favorite flourishes? Like, what moments do you feel are like sold strictly because of the music? It's the for me, it's the piano, just the like, yeah. But it's like so subdued. It's just those like singular. I don't. I'm not a musician. I don't know what you call them. Like the chords or whatever. Like that. Just like I'm not gonna imitate it. Just start doing like this. That's what I'm doing on the screen. (laughs) 
it's 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 both subtle and monumental when that starts mm. to happen in the movie for me like that's the moment i think it's when he's like maybe first in the cell alone or something like that yeah. um when that starts happening it's not even a song it's just these isolated notes and they still together convey a holistic sensation of like I think it's I think it's better on rewatch. Like you just, it is. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're kind of just tuned into everything that sound conveys about the stretch of the movie in front of you. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's so good. It's so good. Rhett, mm. what, what are your thoughts on the, the score here? The, the thing about the score that that almost is the is the greatest testament to its power for me is that you don't think about it upon maybe until later watches. But it's it's just so integral to it. Like I think about those sweeping aerial shots of the prison and the mm. way that they've got it. Like the inside of the prison is so brown and gray, and then outside of the walls of the prison is so vibrant and green. And as as you're seeing it, the music is doing that thing where it kind of swells and swells, and then you see the the free world, and it's like this big moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't I didn't notice it or think about it upon my first watch. Which I think that's the best, you know, compliment you can give a piece of, uh, you know, soundtrack. Yeah, like if it's too ostentatious, then it becomes treacly. You know, like you don't want it to. Yeah, I, I agree because like this this movie skates so close to being too Hallmarkian, and it never really does for me. I it never becomes too treacly. Or is that even saying? Am I saying the right word? Yeah, it's you could, treacly, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Justin, what about you? What do you? What, 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 is this oh, your favorite? Uh, well, I think it's, it's my favorite Thomas Newman. Yeah. Uh, he's had a good career, but easily my favorite Thomas Newman. I think about two big pieces of music, and that is uh, Brooks' story. Mm-hmm. It's just when the narration actually kind of flips to him, and not, it's not read, and the music is just played during that, which I think is the piano. Yeah, it's music, the same. Right? Oh my god, yeah, it's the same. Oh my <laughs> god, and then of course. Whenever I think the main theme only happens on the rooftop and then the closing credits, but yeah. that that is so earned that and sweeping and soaring is just I, those are my two favorite pieces of music. In it's the, the, the movie. you know I hadn't realized that about Brooks and the piano, and it is the cohesion for me of how of how every piece can be applied to like a different part of the movie and is applied to the to a different part of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it also culminates when you know in Andy's grand escape. Like I love how. The music at that moment when he's kind of traipsing through the river, he hasn't yet taken his shirt off and like presented himself to the sky. It's very kind of ominous. Like it's mm-hmm. it's building up to this like really triumphant crescendo. But it to me, it is a mini map of the whole movie, like him getting to that that spot in the river and then finally like like showing his whole body to the sky and the music before that. It's a little bit like, is he, is he still going to make it like he we're, we're yeah. at the river, but it's still this very kind of almost like suspenseful music and I love that as like a little microcosm of of the movie. Well, I feel like if if Darabont made it 20 years later, he would have got out the tunnel and then would have been shot to death by the guards or something like that. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Jesus. It's like post AMC like the mist like the yeah, mist well, like the like mist post post AMC Walking Dead uh run for him, he just makes it all miserable, but um it's orgasmic this score. You know, there's flourishes in this when this score swells you're I mean, like I come. Like, it's... well, I, just, I mean, brother, 
I finish. You are I can't going finish down. unless I listen to the score. To be fair, I, I just but like you just you just get it just hits you so hard. Like the thing that hits me, and I almost like tear up just thinking about it now. It's like it's when and when um, Red is walking towards the tree, and it's just subtle. It's just digging. It's just me- it's meditative, meditative, and then Tom, then Newman just hits it in like 90 miles an hour and just fucking hits you with this swell. Oh God. And it so kills good. me. It just, it's the wide shot. You see the tree, you see him walking towards there. And I, I just, Oh, I'm just like getting choked up now. It's just like, I, I like was, I was just bawling the other night, just watching it. And I just, like, just crying in my, like my, my hands, just like, this is just so fucking beautiful. And it's like, it hits at the universal themes in a way that's not so, yeah. Like Rhett was saying, like, it's not, ostentatious it's not like it doesn't it doesn't seem so obvious it's so it's it just really kind of digs under your skin and darabont talks a little bit about that in the commentary about how like you don't even know it's really happening sometimes like i i like even listening now i'm forgetting that like we actually had the score here but it just kind of bubbles under the surface and then when it does raise up it kind of just takes you over Hmm. um newman's interesting because if you look at this like this is kind of where he's really kicking off his career. You know, prior to this, he had done uh, John Avnet's uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, which is probably a big influence on his score here, given the the, the flourishes and the touchstones and stuff there. But um, he does Altman's The Player, which actually has some shared DNA because Tim Robbins is in that movie. Tim Robbins. Um, great movie. Um, mm-hmm. And then one of my favorite scores, underrated score, um, I just used one of his lines from Heat, but Al Pacino's Son of a Woman. Um, it's actually Martin mm. Brest's Son of a Woman. But let's be real. It's Al Pacino's movie. Um, I feel like... Rest in peace, Martin Brest. Is he, is he dead? I think oh. so. Oh, bummer. Um, <laughs> but I feel like Darabont caught Newman when he's like in his like Hard Day's Night era, where he's just really finding his hook. Um, because you look back at the movies after this, and they all seem to have like the DNA of this score. Like even like you can hear like like little bits and pieces of like American Beauty in the score too, um, oh, especially totally. with the piano. And um, it is it's restrained, but it also is like Max Ernest by the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, just absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, by the way, Martin Brest, he's still alive. All right. Well, congrats we, we, to Martin. Correction on that, Martin. <laughs> Brest. He just turned seventy. Great. Happy birthday, Martin Brest. Interesting career for him because I feel he has a lot of ebbs and flows. Um, you said it, brother. Yeah. Yep. Well, Newman has been nominated for 15 Academy Awards. He was nominated for this. Jesus. Never won once. Oh, Newman. Unreal. <laughs> it's uh, terrible. Someone but give him a, one. Well, look, he's in, he's in good company because, uh, and that's not a reference to the Topher Grace film, by the way. That's um, just a reference to the fact that uh, cinematographer of this movie, Roger Deakins, only won recently for Blade Runner 2049. And he, uh-huh. now he's considered one of the greatest cinematographers. Um, that sounds to me, Mike, that like we people put too much stock in the Academy Awards. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, really? I know it's a hot take. Um, Academy Awards go. splat. I guess it's certified splat. Well, we certified know splat. we know Deacons now. What's I mean in terms of his cinematography here? What's like the first image that comes to mind when you think of Shawshank? Rhett. Well, again, it's that sweeping vision of the the yard and mm-hmm. the the facility, and it's so funny that that's in Ohio. My wife is from there, and now I want desperately to go visit it. Which apparently there's a whole cottage industry there is built, yeah. built up around the site. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just that it's the it, it's how in one shot you can tell the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's this dark, depressing area inside the walls, and then there's this brilliant, shining, beautiful place outside of the walls. That's great. And I mean, to take a prison, to take um, 
uh, a story that's populated entirely just by dudes, you know, the sausage fest that is this film, and make um, something that's visually beautiful out of it, engaging out of it. I I think that's that was a giant triumph. Yeah. Yeah. That was the alternate title was the sausage redemption. <laughs> uh, I will. So he mentioned in that commentary that because that, that's one of his favorite shots, too. And they got mm. it out of luck because every time that they were flying over, the helicopter would be hit with wind. And so it would rattle. Ah. And the DP just managed to get it where it wasn't, you know, they got it in the great shot for that. Because, I mean, you know, you think about it, the timing for that is pretty hard. <laughs> Like you got the bus, you got the people that are coming out of the, the, the prison. It's a, it's a hell of a shot, hell of a shot. Uh, Justin, what about you? What's your, what's the shot that you take? I think it goes back to that rooftop again. Um, when Andy succeeded. Yeah. And there's that kind of slow close up to him, you know, just sitting down and the sun is pouring in, but he's still kind of in the shade. And I think that that's all Roger Deakins right there. Yeah. Like that kind of a contrast in the same shot is just uh that smile kiss. what can i say that smile is great <laughs> yeah uh, great that's GIF. my favorite shot actually that's the shot as i know obviously the iconic shot of him coming out uh in the rain when he breaks out but for me when somebody says shawshank the first thing i do think of is that shot of him on the roof the yeah. satisfied smile on his face fun fact uh deacons hates that shot but the, really the, no no not the, not the rooftop one the iconic one where he's out in the rain how come? Why? That was that was going to be my that was going to be my well, answer. I, I know. Well, like, well, it's funny because I guess it was um they had uh they had to be on like a um, a handy crane or something like that. Like a, a it was it was a little wobbly. And same thing with the helicopter. It was like they only could get so many sh- like takes. And you know, it's rain. You got the lightning and all this other stuff. And so every shot that they were getting was getting blurred. And so they really only had enough time to do you know so many. And Deegan still says like uh, I I think I I lit it too high. I think it's great. I don't know. I, I think, think it's, it's great. That's the shot that it I'm works. like watching with friends and I'm like, that's the moment we're trying to get to. Like, yeah. that's yeah. the that's the payoff, it's, man. The payoff. That reminds me of something, though. I have a question for Rhett, actually. So I'm sure over your over the years, people have asked you, so what song would you like to do again? Are you ever hesitant to answer because maybe that's somebody's favorite song and you don't want to ruin that for them? <laughs> no, it's funny. That question actually is... Is the question I almost wish people would ask me because that's something musician ah. musicians in backstages talk about that kind of stuff all the time. The question you almost always get asked is, "What's your favorite song?" And that's mm. like I don't know the one I just finished. Yeah. But um, but yeah, no, I have a handful of songs that I wish I could re-record. Think about it all the time. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a list that holds a great deal of pain for me. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, I wish I could go back in time. And 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 you're right. And there's a lot of people where if I were to tell them that the song Bonfire off my self-titled solo album from 2009 is a complete disaster versus the original version, um, they would they would get upset because they played that song at their wedding or whatever. That's yeah, exactly. It's a complicated thing about being truthful, I guess, right? Well, that, it's, it's funny because you listen to a lot of commentary tracks with filmmakers, especially someone like John Carpenter, who you can't even talk to him about his past without being like, oh, it wasn't scary at all. It was just, I wish I could go back and redo the movie. And it's just like, Jesus really? Christ, he's... John. Oh yeah, no, it's like, John, oh, he's very the movies honest. are great. He's, there's no filter. He, he like, he hates he... his work sometimes. I'm just like, all right, fucking, let's con- I think Deacons is fine. This is like one of the most iconic fucking Deacons, shots. it's, it's fine. Yeah. It's like, anyways, fine. also- Roger, everything's gonna be fine. It's more and than be fine. Fair, and to be fair, like, I know that they brought in Deacons to be like this like veteran guard, but like you look at like I feel like this was 
pretty symbiotic than like what the trivia leads to because you look at his like pre-work and like you know granted he had been taken into the coens with like barton fink and the hudsucker proxy which by the way first 20 minutes of hudsucker proxy is good the rest of it's kind of a slog um i looks great though um but his post shawshank career is just on fire and you can yep. tell i feel like it opened the door for him because he goes and does i'm not a big fan of dead man walking but at least it looks good um, tim robbins Tim Robbins directs it. He goes and does uh, Edward Zwick uh, with uh, Courage Under Fire, becomes one of his go-to cinematographers. Um, he does Fargo, Lebowski, which really kind of kicks him into higher gear. Then he connects with Scorsese for Cundon, um, does The Hurricane, and now he's you know probably. I mean, I don't think it's. I think it's a safe bet to say he's the cinematographer right now. One hundred percent. Right. It makes sense. I I don't know anything about cinematography or this man, but it makes sense to me that he did Cohen stuff. I just think it's also very playful in Shawshank. Like remembering mm-hmm. the scene where the warden throws the rock through the tunnel and it zooms out and we just see kind of like their faces like looking in mm. through the hole. Like that's just just fun. <laughs> like, yeah. I heard he wants to redo that. I heard he wasn't. Yeah, happy yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wants to go back. He's like he's trying to call Denny all my Villeneuve. favorites. Yeah. You know, uh, I know you're working on Dune, but uh, can I can I go back and fix the 2049 shot? It's like Jack from Lost. We have to go back. Uh, we have to go back. <laughs> We're gonna um, de-age Clancy Brown and everybody. It's well, let's great. do not let's touch back. Clancy. <laughs> I want to go back real quick to the 95 Oscars before we close out of this category because I I think. It's easy to sit back and say, oh, I can't believe this didn't win. But we made fun of the Oscars. I don't really put much weight into the Oscars anymore. I think it's a fucking joke. But this is a great year. I mean, the competition is fucking fierce. Like, you have Forrest Gump, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Great comedy, by the way. Pulp Fiction. Which is... It really comes down to this. So you have Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, Shawshank Redemption. I think it really... I, I think... I, I still like Forrest Gump. I think I think it's solid. I under I feel like it gets a little more like I was saying before, Treakley and in, in, in Hallmark um, than this does. But I think when you really debate this category and this race in hindsight, twenty something years later, it really comes down to Shawshank and Pulp Fiction, right? I would say so. Very different. Quiz shows <laughs> Quiz shows very good. By the way, it's, I think Quiz yeah. is really good. I don't know. My um, kids really liked Pulp Fiction, also, Mel. I, <laughs> they're very, but they're for different reasons. They're very. I feel like they have the reverse effect. Like where you think that Pulp Fiction is very fun on the surface, and then you're like, oh shit, this is like dark. And oh yeah, <laughs> like it's two different types of yeah. great, two totally different movies. Agreed, two totally different. But I love them both. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. He and Morgan Freeman had just had no shot. I mean, if you think about it, he's going up against. I didn't realize John Travolta was nominated for Pulp Fiction. Wow. Yeah. Um, so Tom Hanks wins obviously for Forrest Gump, which is funny because Tom Hanks was actually in the contention for um, to play Andy. Uh, totally, I hundred percent believe that. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. You chose Gump. more than Tom chose- Cruise. Good lord. Yeah, Tom Cruise um, is quiet. Andy Dufresne. The whole that movie just sucked. That would have been <laughs> so bad. Oh my yeah. god. All right. Yeah. So well, who else was nominated that year? So it, um, it's it's impossible. It was never going. I mean, adapted screenplay. Force Gump basically just kind of sidelined them because it, Forrest Gump wins in every category that this is Jesus. nominated. In. I just don't think Shawshank had a chance, even if you remove no. Forrest Gump, because you have to, again the Oscars is still so commercial. It would have had a chance in adapted know? screenplay. I feel. I feel if Maybe. Gump isn't nominated that year, the other comp- the other competition is Madness of King George. Okay, nobody's fool, which I love, but no one cared about that movie. No, um, no, that was a that was a pretty big hit. But I don't think it would. Time. It's just not the type of movie I feel is going to win the screenplay. Well, like I was you, nominated for that, so I don't appreciate you saying it was. Well, I thought we were going to keep right. this tight. We are, we are. All right, but so anyway, without we're not going to go through every category. But if you had, all right, we had one Oscar to give. Mm. 
who wins it for you? Is it Darabont for director or screenplay? Or is it cinematography for Deacons? Or is it score for Newman? Score. Ooh. Mel's if score? I have to be a score. Of You're only four? allowed to give one? Only one here. You can only give one Oof. Oscar. It's a hard year. You course correct right now. You get to go back in time and, and give one Oscar to one of the, the one of the crew members here or actors. Oh wait, so any wait, of the nominations? Wait, sorry, you any said of the it was nominees. three. Oh, any of the nominations? Okay. Yeah, I added three, but I because we're not in the casting category. But let's just throw in let's just throw in the acting also. I mean, I would give it best. I would give it best picture now. Yeah. Yeah, one hundred percent. You're going picture. I love Pulp Fiction. I love Quentin Tarantino, but I'm I, I think Shawshank for me. It's just some weird outlier, and I don't. I can't explain why I would love the movie so much all the time. But I, I, I thought it's the best one. Mel, are you sticking to score now that we've got some other ones in here? I haven't seen Pulp Fiction in a while, but I do think Shawshank is more commercial than Pulp Fiction. Like it would have won, gone going up against Pulp Fiction is my guess. Um, no, but there was no narrative around Shawshank no. when it came out. Like I, I, Pulp I Fiction think... came out, it was like this big. It was the ch- the turning of the tide, independent filmmaking, uh, everything else. Okay, and Shawshank okay, okay. was just kind of sure the narrative. You know. um, no, I'm going to th- stick with score. <laughs> okay, I, I I agree. I I think I'm giving it score because if I had to change things, I I think I still go with Pulp Fiction, best picture. Um, hey, you're not going to. It's you know, no it's just it's so hard because it, it's just I that movie is just so transcendent in terms of like what it did with genre. I, it's fucking wild, yeah. but. Hard year. Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. Hard year. Um, but uh, let's talk about uh, some of the cast, in um, which we already have a little bit. But we'll talk a little bit more in a section I like to call, and we like to call, and this pod likes to call, Heroes and Villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! It would have been funny if you called it uh, Brooks Hatland's Heroes. Brooks Hatland's. <laughs> like Brooks Hatland's. He sponsors uh, all the Memorial. Ragtag. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Memorial to Friends or whatever. Um, look, in this category, we're going to be talking about all the cast. Uh, you know, just the cast of this movie, the characters that we love. I don't think we need to get into the weeds too much because I feel like we've actually talked a lot about some of the characters, but mm. um, I did want to ask just off the top, you know, the impact of changing some of the characters here. Cause in the book, Andy's short. Um, Tom Cruise. He doesn't, he's Tom Cruise. That's why they're like short person, Tom Cruise. Yeah. Um, Red is a, <laughs> is a white Irishman. Um, and Warden Norton doesn't die and Tommy gets transferred. 
And there's multiple wardens. Yeah. And there's multiple wardens too. Such good choices all around. Right? Agreed. Like just let's make a movie, you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So you're saying so you think this upgrades and elevates the story. I right? think they were so smart. I think Frank oh. was so smart. Yeah, well, the novella, the novella works fine because part of the the power of the novella is that you're feeling just these decades pass, yeah. mm-hmm. and the and these free people, the wardens and guards, they come and go, they have lives, they go off and do things. Where these men are just trapped in this prison. But yeah, for a movie, if you'd had to like uh, meet a new warden every half hour or whatever, that would have been awkward. And having Hadley <laughs> be Hadley through the whole movie, that's fantastic. It just distills all the hateful you know, overlords into one hateful overlord, which, by the way, I have kind of a funny uh, um, story about Clancy. Oh, my God, please. Oh, oh you're oh, well, hold on. To you should know Clancy this. Clancy watch. Yeah. Yeah. Mel is a huge, maybe the maybe the biggest yeah. uh, Clancy Brown fan. So here we go. Love him. Uh, well, so, yeah, go for it. Just go for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my buddy Ben Acker does a, a show called Thrilling Adventure Hour with his friend Ben Blacker. It's an old style radio program done on stage in whatever podcast form but they 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 run through a um, roster of incredible actors like a lot of great character actors voice actors um so uh, clancy kind of entered their world and did a few things and I, I was asking ben i was like what do you use him for i mean do you is he a villain like do you always end up using he's like no i mean yes but he's <laughs> like no i get clancy whenever i want gravitas like his voice is just such a tool um and he says, and he really loves to act. And he told this story about how one time uh, he, call, he had to call him up last minute because they, whatever, added a scene. And they they had a character that they wanted him to play uh, called Shape Ape. And Shape Ape is this brilliant ape, but he's just brilliant for an ape. Um, so he's he's really just obsessed with shapes. Like, he's like, mm, that's a triangle. Whatever. So... So he calls up Clancy um, because he thinks it would be funny to have Clancy's incredible voice doing Shape Ape. And um, and Clancy's like, oh, what day is it? And he's like, it's Saturday. Oh, I can't do it. My I got my daughter's got a recital. I can't do it. And then Clancy calls him back 10 minutes later. He goes, but what's the character? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> and he tells him it's Shape Ape. He's a brilliant, dumb ape. And Clancy goes, oh, let me call you right back. <laughs> Five minutes later, he's gotten out of the recital and he's playing Shape Ape. Oh my God. Uh, I, I believe this. 100%. It wasn't possible for my love for Clancy to grow, and yet here I am. Shape Ape, taming. here he is. Yeah. Of course, his daughter will be telling that story in the therapist. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, I, I love the, the alliteration there, though. The, 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 I guess it's not, it's just the rhyming Shape Ape. It's great. It's uh, yeah. the best use of ape I've seen, heard since uh, Christmas Ape in uh, The Simpsons. I love the repeated calls. Like he's just at home, like, oh, God, God. I, I can't <sighs> let it go. <laughs> Yeah, and like his daughter's like, and that was the third time he canceled on my recital. It's true, well, you can see him. I know this This has now become the Clancy Brown show. But well, that's tell. fine. I wasn't going to start with Clancy, but we might as well. You, you know, can tell in everything there. that he's in that he is just enjoying his craft. Like, it doesn't matter. Mm. Like, I did not like the whole, like, mortuary, whatever it was called, that new release of the Halloween Oh, the anthology. Yeah, it, I thought it was pretty bad, but you know what? Clancy was in there giving his all and he's doing a great job. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do, would you have liked it more if Clancy was in every story that's in that anthology yes. movie? Yeah. I would be like, wow, the quality really improved. The writing is That'd better. Be like, would you like every movie more if Clancy Brown was in it? Let's of talk about would. him in Shawshank. Mm-hmm. He's great. <laughs> is this your favorite Clancy? I was mm. introduced to Clancy through Carnival. And so. Yes. Mm, that makes sense. 
I feel that it was in keeping and that my, I think I've said this on an episode before my like (laughs) shared universe in my head is that he's the same. He's the same person. He's like this immortal (laughs) preacher that just like was also a guard at Shawshank for a bit. Um, Uh, But yeah, he, I, and in pet cemetery too. Also like, I feel like I got used to Clancy as this very like brazen, (laughs) like verbally creative villain. (laughs) Um, and he plays that, he plays that so well. I, he, he's a good foil to the quiet terror of the warden. Um, but is, but is his own character also like, mm-hmm. he's pretty dumb, but he's creative when it comes to his insults. Yeah. I, I, I and physically bad. scary. I kind of feel bad for him at the end of the movie. Aww. I do. No, well, let me I tell do. you why I don't feel bad. Because, for him, because I mean, because he's actually because he's because the thing is, is that he he is sympathetic to Andy in multiple scenes in which he's instrumental in getting Andy, you know, where he's at. Only because the warden wants. I mean, I love a crony, but and but he is a crony through and through. Oh, yeah. oh he's a total crony. Yeah. Well, here's I, here's what I like about this, Mike. On on that is the fact that in ninety nine percent of other movies, once the rooftop scene happens. He would now become best friends with Andy throughout the rest of the movie. He's changed. But no, he guns down Tommy. <laughs> oh, I forget that later. he guns down. I think it's him. Okay, I take it back. I don't feel bad for yeah. him. Um kind of feel bad for him a little bit. Like he's you know, he didn't really know that he was gonna get caught, you know, and he's just getting his fucking taxes done. <laughs> You you feel bad yeah. for the guard that yeah. abused prisoners who now just like yes. his consequence is that he has to go to jail. Like he well, doesn't even fair, die. He did tell the guy in the beginning. Well, you know, he told the guy prisoners. to be quiet in the beginning. And then oh my god! Listen, so I'm just joking. Oh my god. I'm just just joking. I just love Clancy Brown. So this isn't your favorite Clancy Brown then. This would be would it be Carnival. Um, this isn't my favorite just because he doesn't have a ton of screen time. Mm-hmm. I think he is great. I think. Yeah, everything about it is great. But Carnival, I just think, like, yeah, let's front and center Clancy. Do you wish Clancy was playing Andy? No. <laughs> Wouldn't work. Well, just, I could just imagine it. Just, I didn't kill my wife. I feel like, yeah, right. Give me a fucking break. Like, like you just, like, look <laughs> at him and just, like, wife. just like, um, uh, well, we got a lot of character actors in this movie. Mm. We might as oh, well just yeah. t- talk them in the sweeping greatest hits moment because there's a lot. Um, Bob Gunton, which is the first of uh, incredible. Two- Incredible just great great villain in this and i the, i want to ask this question because as we've since we've all read the source material i think i like it the fact that he he had he he fucking blows his brains out in this movie like i i, I didn't i totally forgot that that doesn't happen in the novel and or no, the novella yeah. and i was kind of disappointed reading it like it it just was like i want that fucking come up it's because he's so evil um, and he's even more evil here because he actually kills Tommy, which isn't in the book either. Cause they just kind of transfer Tommy away. Yep. I, I just, Oh, this might be like, because these changes that Darabont makes might be the, the most prominent villain in King's dominion, even though the evil of him actually comes from Darabont than King. I don't know. Um, well, I think it's a great example. Like all these other changes that we were talking about of, um, sometimes, an adaptation can be better than the source material or just because something has been changed from the source material doesn't mean it's bad. Like I feel like some people are, are, are so insistent upon a movie being faithful to the, no, the original you, story. What you should be faithful I feel to like you, is the mode of storytelling and agreed. visuals agreed. are different <laughs> from reading. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I, I granted I mean, red narrates it too, right? He narrates the novella, mm-hmm. but you can't just, cut and paste that into a screenplay no. No. It, it, for most 
stories like that. You can't do it. Except for No Country for Old Men, which I think they literally is just word for word the Cormac McCarthy novel. Yeah. But it works. <laughs> what I yeah. didn't I notice. So, somehow nominated for an Academy Award, even though it's literally just the book. But uh, I hadn't noticed about the warden's death, and I don't know why. It's rather obvious. There's the point where he's aiming the gun at the door, and you think he's going to start taking people out instead mm-hmm. of getting himself. Yeah. And then someone says, make it easy on yourself. And that seems to be the like the sort of cowardly decision that he makes is to like, oh, the easiest way out is to do this. Um, and it's hey, just a nice... get busy living? Yeah. Or get busy dying? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Norton... What a shithead! <laughs> like just the worst. Yeah, don't you I, think I, the like, line when he's like, "Put your put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me." That's a little I, much. That's it's a, a little lot. much. It's a oh, lot. Sure, sure. Yeah, but it also speaks to. Um, well, we don't need to go into that. I'm not going to go into the 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 the, the pederast uh, history of uh, the the church, but um, <laughs> oh, it just, seems to go. Te- you'll just tease it. Yeah, we'll just tease <laughs> it. And I'll just throw it in there. But I do love that that he's this like uber religious man because growing up as a Jew in a Catholic school. I was always wary about anyone who was, who was super, super religious because I was just like, okay, like there's something evil going on here behind the scenes. First off, you're charging me more because I'm not your religion. So that's already, oh, you're, making a, you're making some business here with religion. So I've already have to distrust. So I, I feel like growing up with this movie exacerbated those feelings for me. It was like, oh, look at this. This guy's fucking pure evil. He has like a religious, you know, quote on his sampler behind that's covering up his greed I don't know. There's a commentary there to be to be said about how like men, and especially society, takes scripture and and uses it to abuse for power. I mean, I don't know. I love oh, it, yeah. but you know, lots unpacked there. Great, great job. Re- I don't know re- what re- you're talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do we have anything else we want to talk about with Gunton? Other than the fact that we have to talk about him again tomorrow with Dead Silence. Uh, yeah, Rhett, but- you're more than welcome to join us <laughs> on, on another pe- podcast. We're talking about. Uh, the the horror film Dead Silence about uh, it sounds like you guys really enjoyed enjoyed this film. No, it's awful. It's a shit shit movie. I will um, not reveal if it was certified fresh or splat. I will not. Yeah. Does Bob play a dummy? He. Pl- yeah, you know what? No spoilers. Okay. Maybe it's like what you're saying with like Clancy Brown, where he's just playing the same character. So maybe he's like mm-hmm. this is like Sam Norton before he blows his brains out in Shawshank. That's right. Well, let's talk about William Sadler, who's a familiar face in, uh, in King's Dominion, real quick, because I I love his performance here. He caught Durbont's eye because he was in the pilot for uh, Tales from the Crypt, so there's a lot of shared history there. Would go on to star in The Green Mile and The Mist, um, and he's going to be in Salem's Lot next year. I love I love Sadler. I think he's one of the most dependable, like Clancy Brown. I think anytime he's there, he's going to deliver. Am I wrong? No, you're. Who does, even even who before does this, he, play? he was the who do, who, he Haywood. Was, okay. He Thank was you. Death, yes, love in, death in Bogus Journey. He was the villain of Die Hard 2. I mean, yeah, he, he's yeah. extremely dependent. Like, there are people there are people who are probably going to talk about who are just inmates with him, like um, Tony's sister's boyfriend on The Sopranos. Yeah, I thought that's what he's in there. Yeah, he's right. also in Mean Streets. And yeah. like, these are just like people buried in, but. God, the cast for this is just incredible. And I think and he's Sadler's no really exception. hot. I think he's very attractive. Oh, William Sadler? You, you, you should yeah. see Die Hard 2. You'll, you'll fully I've never seen it. Die Hard okay, wow. Um, and one, one thing I really love just about the way he did that character is early on, I thought, I'm going to hate this guy. This guy's going to be one of the villains. And I'm like, oh, no, he's just one of like the friends. One of the guys that kind of becomes a better person tangentially mm. during the thing just by association, uh, by his association to Andy. 
I mean, yeah. it's not like he becomes a great person. <laughs> no. I mean, all these people like... might be in prison for a reason. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They're not all Andy. <laughs> I love I love that. I also love how he wins the bet at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But you, Fish. but he's so good at <laughs> acting that you realize that like, this is a person who's never actually going to be on top of a situation. Like, even though he won the bet, like his his whole demeanor is one that is just like always one step behind. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, what I love about this movie is the subtlety in creating like what's Red's game, but ultimately becomes like Andy's gang in the sense that like they're all together in this. They all know that like Andy's pretty instrumental in their survival in a way, you know, like they're able to get the outside gig, obviously, because of Red, because he's able to afford it. But then like because Andy is doing the taxes and all this other stuff, he creates the library. He gets them out of like their odd jobs that would have otherwise had. And I love that camaraderie that you get that isn't so obvious, you know, like it's just subtly there. Like they're all in this one thing. Like it's almost like they become this like cast of characters in a TV show within this movie. Um, and I love that they're always a part of whatever Andy's doing. And there's this like subtle respect for them. Like when he's gone, they're talking about him, you know, and especially even afterwards, like, you know, they're thinking about the, like, the, like when Red's missing him and stuff, they're still, you know, there's that, that sense of loss. So like you can tell, you could you could tell like they've, they've, Andy's, you know, absence is is felt. Um, anyway, that's just a digress on on Haywood because I feel like Haywood is a is pretty good emblematic of like the crew itself, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of Brooks Hatlin, which we got to talk about James Whitmore because uh, oof. Oof. he's so good. Oof. Yeah, I don't Do you- know. This is another one of my small nitpicks. I don't know that the bird is actually necessary for this film. <laughs> Again, the bird is a little much. <laughs> like, can't well, he yeah. just be like this charming old man who runs the library? But but the bird has to be set free, don't you yeah. see? Yeah, it's <laughs> a big metaphor. Yeah, I was going to ask is like, do we like these broad, big, um, not broad, but like obvious metaphors in the movie? Do they work? I, that's the thing about this movie is I think they do work because mm-hmm. you've got everything coming together. You've got Thomas Newman's score, Roger Deakins cinematography, Frank Darabont, not just adapting a Stephen King property, but somebody who really loves Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And then you get this incredible cast together. Like I said, I feel like if you take out any of those elements, it's very possible that the Including movie doesn't the work. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. It still works for me. Yeah. I, I, like, so, I like when the movie uh, has enough faith in itself to be subtle. Like I... Like, I think that there is more that could be said, obviously, about the racial dynamics of, of prison life. Um, but I every time that Red goes before an all-white parole board, mm-hmm. like, that to me is, like, the movie being just visual and, like, not, like, it's, I don't know. Like, it's a little bit just more considered I, I, than to put, me. I, I think for me, it's like, if, I don't know, let's think of somebody from The Wire. Well, I, you know, I take it back because there, because um, the Marlowe, does mm-hmm. watch birds on the roof. So I was going to yeah. say, well, it would be like if the wire had birds, but no, there are birds in the wire <laughs> are, and they are also sim- symbolic. I think for me, the moment the movie starts with that grand sweeping shot that, that you talked about earlier over the prison, the, the movie itself is just big. Yeah. So for me, everything about the movie is big. So any analogies or any symbolism that's big, it just fits in with the rest of the movie for me. So I think that's why it's it such works. a contradiction to the, marketing of like again like gritty real prison life which i think it's sort of intentional that it undercuts that this movie is not about realism it no it's a fable it's a fable in a lot of ways you know yeah well it's a throwback to a lot of the grand traditions of prison movies like you look at like cool hand luke or you know the great escape 
Escape from um, Alcatraz. Escape from Alcatraz. Like all these movies, like I guess the gritty is just there. Like they, they they were more sold as this survival tale, you know, like mm. this this triumph of the will. Um, and I think that's one of the big things that you get from this movie is that I mean, even the book or the 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 posters by Drew Struzan, I think, isn't it? Um, where it has like their their sketch drawing and everything like that, and it, and it really like capitalizes on the light that's beaming in. I mean, I can mm-hmm. see why people take, uh, you know, biblical, you know, uh, takeaways from this, you know, and, and religious takeaways from this, because it does kind of siphon that imagery, um, you know, throughout, especially with regards to light and, um, you know, freedom and, and whatnot. But, um, I don't know, metaphorically, the, the bird doesn't bother me so much. What, what I love about the bird is, uh, the stories that I, I read about it. So, like is this, so i heard this bird was a real pain in the ass on set well it was no no he, the bird wasn't a pain in the ass the person that was like observing and making sure they were good with the the the, the animals was apparently like one of my favorite parts of the commentary is uh darabont starts going like you know uh well, we had this bird here and uh well, by the way that's uh that worm um or that maggot that uh you know that andy's pulling out from his oatmeal uh is actually uh just a it was a real uh, maggot there but then when we wanted to feed it even though it was a bait uh, worm that we bought at a bait shop. Uh, the person on the set wouldn't let me feed it to the birds. So they had to have a wax dummy uh, maggot, but it was had to be a, a maggot that had already died of natural causes. It like became like I, I'm not I'm not kidding. Like he, you could see like his anger was coming out. He's like I, you know I thought he even says it as much. He goes, uh, "Well, I thought this was a funny anecdote, but you can clearly see I'm getting worked up about it." And, uh, <laughs> I can only imagine Mike's really like, upset about these bird watchers here. But I, I can only imagine just like uh, like it just sounds like a, a, a like a curb enthusiasm moment where you're just like it doesn't matter I, if it gets you know if the, someone bought the worm the worm's going to be eaten by a fish. You know I can just see that happening on set. But anyway, it was a huge like, to do. I don't actually care if the bird dies from it. Yeah, I mean it was a big to do. So. So the fact that they had the bird, there was a lot of hurdles that clearly got under Darabont's skin. Um, anyway, anything on James Whitmore? <laughs> uh, Another great character actor. Yeah, I mean uh, that that whole scene where he where they read the letter and mm-hmm. it's kind of his post life um, after getting out of prison. It's just another reminder from 25 years ago about the near impossibilities of people who have been incarcerated trying to live a normal life after getting out, you know, yeah. and yeah. it's, it's very sad and I'm getting choked up thinking about it and yeah. more great music during that sequence too, which culminates obviously in, in the Brooks was here part and uh, yeah, just great. Of all, of all oh, the images that I, that I come back to like the visuals from this film, um, the one of Brooks on the bus with his knuckles just white knuckling the bar on yeah. the seat in front of him and looking so lost and so out of time. It, that's that's heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I, as a 51-year-old man now, feeling very old these days, I just, yeah, I feel that. It's, it's such a, that whole relationship, even beyond just someone coming out and um, being rehabilitated, quote-unquote rehabilitated, whatever that means, um, the idea of the the society's relationship to the elderly is just awful. Like, um, you know, like Shutter just put out the Giorgio Romero short um, or PSA, the amusement park, and it's just so haunting because you just watch it and it's just all about the relationship to like how we treat the elderly, and we don't have a society that's really built for that. You know, we we move too fast, and like even what he says, he's like, "Wow, this you know time got really moving," and it's so sad to watch even just those little gasps. Cause it's almost like a Norman Rockwell painting, like a sad Norman Rockwell mm-hmm. painting. Like you see him, like you mentioned right on the bus 
And then when you see him like walking on the streets and you can tell like, you know, it's hard, it's tough for him and he's alone. And then the way that everyone like looks at him at the grocery store, it's just fucking heartbreaking. It's, it's awesome. Just, yeah. I think to myself all the time, like whenever I get almost sideswiped by a vehicle or something, I'm always like, the world went and got itself in a big damn hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you say it out loud? Um, you know, and, uh, to yeah. myself. No, she, like, says it, she says it to the bird on her shoulder. I was going to say. It's very yeah. endearing. <laughs> Nice. My bird is not a metaphor. It's just a bird I like. Uh, <laughs> I've got bad news for you. That bird's not real. Well, let's talk about the two. Don't talk about my bird. Let's talk about the bromance uh, that we want to really talk about here with uh, between Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. Quick it, shout out to Floyd first, but he's great. Floyd, oh. yeah. Um, the other part of the the other member of the group. Oh, that is true. Yeah, he I mean, looks a little like Ron Perlman, but is not Ron Perlman. Yeah, which by the way, he that's a, a regular of Darabont's going back to yep. the Women in the Room. So he's been in, uh, I believe, every one of his movies. Um, I like when he goes, Red, I do believe you're talking out of your ass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's great. He looks, he does look like Ron Perlman. Or he even looks a little bit like, um, uh, which is, did you say Tom Waits? Because he kind of, the, I've always I didn't, thought. He, but you okay. can. Okay. I, did, I just didn't want to say it and, you know, forget that you just did it. But Why wasn't it, Tom Waits in this? I could have absolutely seen him as one of the, the inmates. Could have seen him as, uh, as, as Red. No, I'm just joking. I'll call him tomorrow and ask him what Tommy. happened. Could have been Tommy. He just played himself. And then <laughs> played Tom Waits Tommy. came to the prison. <laughs> Uh, well, first off, I would love to hear Tom Waits narrating this would be incredible as well. I have to say uh, <laughs> the audio book with Tom Waits reading it would be okay. amazing. Yeah. Sorry. My yeah. Floyd sidetracked. <laughs> it's Tom fine. Waits. It's fine. Well, Red and Andy. So Red and Andy, this is, as you were mentioning before, Mel, this is a relationship movie for men, uh, in a way it's a bromance movie. It's a, it's a, the teary movie for guys. Um, no, no, I didn't say it was for, I think that's how, again, it's marketed. I, yeah. I think that hides its universal appeal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. It is about two men, though. Well, look, you're you're not alone in thinking that because both of the co-stars said exactly the same thing. They, it, Robin said, this is a movie about the friendship of two men without a car chase in it. Um, and Freeman said, to me, it was a love affair. It was two men who really loved each other. Um, and Vanity Fair basically said that Andy and Red's on-screen relationship kind of mirrors the Im- intimate connection viewers gradually built with the film over time. Um mm. What do you think about that? What do you what, what do you take for the relationship? Is this uh, is this the heart of the movie for you? Do or do you side with one or the other? Is it a package deal here, Justin? Um, I mean, I think that Morgan Freeman kind of just steals the movie. But again, yes, it's it's absolutely the the um, the duo. It's the duo, I, I, and, and it is great to watch them and, and watch their relationship grow throughout the movie. Like Vanity Fair said, that's a good. I think it's a pretty good analogy about people's relationship with the movie over time. Um, you, you, you see it on Morgan Freeman's face throughout the movie, how he feels about him, even without the narration at certain points. Yeah. And yeah, it's very moving. And we'll talk about the ending later, but I think I'm a little more far, a little more forgiving of the very end of the movie because I've bought so much into this relationship that I feel it's kind of, earned at that point but i i think we could talk about it now i i, I feel okay, like this is a good yeah because I, I feel okay. like that that because i think that the big argument that i think darabont finally came around to is this fact that like eh, yeah i guess we kind of need to see them together <laughs> i feel like you can make an argument for either way but. i agree i think it fits into the movie like i said the movie it just feels bigger and grander than the the novella does which literally just ends with him saying, I hope I see him again. Mm-hmm. I think it wouldn't work for me if there was a whole scene of them talking. Like, hey, you found me, huh? And then that <laughs> goes on for five minutes. And then you're like, oh, okay, let's, we need let's to wrap get this, this up. Going. But I like him just seeing him 
smiling from afar. And I, and I love something else that works. There's not an extreme close-up of them hugging. It, the, the camera is in another continent by the but time the they finally embrace. But the embrace is still embrace. very clear. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's so far one. away. It's, it's a, a good it's hug. It's so good. And that is right when the music swells, too. And God, oh my, I'm getting choked up thinking about it. So yeah. I, I'm, I think I'm a little more forgiving. But I, 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 again, I don't know. Grass is always greener, right? Maybe what if we always had the ending just being the bus driving away mm-hmm. and then it going to black? And then we're with presented I, with, with the alternate ending, and now we're saying, "Oh, that would never work." So, anyway, that's that's my uh, yeah, that's there. Th- that, that's good though with the swell because yeah. does the swell work if he just says "I hope" and it says like directed by Frank Darabont at that? I think it still does, but it, it still doesn't. Works, but not God, the beach, the huge, the the waves crashing in, and well, it's I, that I, juxtaposition of color too. Like we we haven't seen color like that the entire yeah. movie, other than maybe the blue skies at times. You know, when they're Look, outside. It's indulgent. It feels indulgent. Oh, it is. But that also seems like after life in prison, you're entitled just to a little indulgence at yeah. the end. Yeah. I would Rhett, Rhett, what are your thoughts on this ending? Um, I think that so many of the things so it's a it's a medium question, right? In uh in a novella, it's perfectly fine to let these these things be open ended like like Tommy Tommy goes off and he's in some other he got a light sentence got sent to a, a minimum security prison, um, but in the movie like you need to see it like you need yeah. to see Tommy get gunned down so it's just it's it's different and I mean I'm not a film expert but I do I do know that Hollywood likes to wrap things up and I get that it's the old 97s appeared in a movie. Uh, with Vince Vaughn, who's a big fan champion of ours, um, called The Breakup. I love Vince Vaughn. Yeah. yeah. It's so great. May, so I won't say anything about the movie The Breakup. It was it was a different kind of Vince Vaughn movie. It was it was like more painful. Right? Yes. Than, than <laughs> totally. Yeah. No joke. That was one maybe the last date I went on with an ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Terrible date breakup. movie. It was an awful yeah. date Terrible movie. Terrible yeah. date movie. It is called, in its defense, The Breakup. So it is absolute yeah. defense. Look at the title. Yes, I agree. So, but I remember when they were making it, and I and I knew the other two uh, writers on the film, and they were um, they were trying to make a Cassavetti style cinema verite thing, uh-huh. right? And they said from the very beginning, um, when when this ends and they break up, we're not going to have them get back together. We're not going to have. They did all these things. They were they were making a big stand. I don't mean to put words in their mouths. This is like a long time ago now. I think it's okay to say this. Well, okay, they they turn in the movie and the 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 studio's like, "Oh yeah, this is this is not going to work for us." So they had to go back in like 6 months oh, wow. later and shoot a whole new final scene where Jen Aniston and Vince meet on the street. And yep. Vince at this point is in his action movie mode where he's slimmed down and and um it's like a whole different looking guy and they had to come up with this <laughs> thing where then they meet up on the street and they have a few quips that. and they still end up it, they leave it more open and like maybe they're going to get back together. And, but, um, but it was, I know Hollywood wants what Hollywood wants and it's going to get it because it's paying $25 million. Yeah. I think Frank Darabont did a great job with this movie because we, as the audience have come to want that same thing. We need, you know, it's fine to say, I hope I make it across that border and I hope I make it to that beach. That'd be great. Right. But to see him walk across the beach and in, in a long pan and, the swelling music and they hug that's way more gratifying yeah yeah, yeah I, I think so yeah i mean 
I can't argue too much against it because I do feel fucking great when I have that shot. <laughs> you know, that's that, not it's not the scene I would take out of the movie. Like, let's, no, no, no. let's leave it like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that puts a button on it for me in terms of the really like I, I mean, because the whole movie, well, the thing I love about the chemistry here between the two of them, which I'm actually surprised they never really did any movies together again, but they have just such a an earned chemistry because I totally believe that when Red says, you know, like I took a liking and like you, you, you see it on Morgan Freeman's face and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. sort of yeah. smart Alec, not really smart Alec, but just that, that, that refusal to distinguish hope is so earned also with Robbins. Whereas where I feel like if it did with Hanks and especially Cruz, like Cruz would just be like, you know, like you're not putting me back in the hole. God damn it. You know, it's like, just, oh, yeah. you know, it just would have been like, it, then he would have been like, you know, muscling his way through the thing and be like, you know, Clancy's uh, like, God, he's slippery. You know, what are you, what are you obtuse? Are you obtuse? Are you kidding me? Like I, it would just be too much. Like, or, you know, if well, it was no, like, uh, I imagine, I imagine that, him getting out of the tunnel with the rain and he's just kind of like chuckling to himself. Like, like I can't, Believe, uh, <laughs> he's got like glasses on. And he like goes up to like the banker at the end. It's like, um, can you can you mail this for me? You know, he's doing <laughs> his, like, like a really gross blonde wig or something like that. I'm yeah, in disguise. It, it's basically a reel for Jerry Maguire the next or the two <laughs> oh years. God, that is my favorite. My favorite Andy moment is when he goes. How could you be so obtuse? obtuse. I know. Is it, is it deliberate? Because he really doesn't know. Like mm-hmm. he's so still sort of innocent at that point. Yeah, that's yeah. In, this like, is my. I've got that mail in my nightmares and dreamscape section. No spoilers. I just wrote obtuse. Yeah, because that yeah. part is so good. I do think Andy is too. His character is inconsistent, and and he has to be again. Like he has to just fulfill a function more than be a person. Mm-hmm. And he's a little too precious for me. Mm. Um, but framing it. From Red's point of view, I also love the scene where they're in the library walking and he's explaining the Randall, the the man that he invented to Morgan Freeman as they kind of keep going through each thing of books. And it's it's to me one of the only moments where Andy expresses like a real time pleasure in a thing that he's doing. And he's like, I had this great idea. I'm this creative person like and they they enjoy it together. And otherwise, Andy is just kind of like this really quiet, um, this unrealistically zen person and i hate well, when he's I, like what was his name the man who died and it's like god you're in prison get over well, yourself think, oh, the way i look at andy as a character is i feel like he's more of a story that's being told right as opposed to just this real this is exactly what happened this is exactly who he was that's what i get from the novella i don't get that from the movie i oh, see i get that from the movie because i feel like he's, he's always even though you know he's on the poster and everything else i still feel like we're always at arm's length because we're technically still with Red the entire mm-hmm. time. I think if we cut that opening scene, I would be with you. Yeah. If yeah. we weren't with Andy at the beginning when it's like, here is this man. Look what he did. <laughs> like- Look, it, you know, it's funny because I always forget about that. That is at the beginning of the movie. Because I always just see the the aerial shot of the prison. Yeah, I yeah, always yeah. forget. But you're right. It's so weird. Well, we're talking a lot of, about things that we want to cut. Things that we, you know, you, you might want to love. Things that you cherish. You kind of say that there, there are dreams. There are nightmares. <laughs> There are dreamscapes. There are nightmares. There are nightmares and dreamscapes, which is our next section. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What 
what are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. All right, well, in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, we're going to be talking about what we loved and what we hated. Um, oof, I hate using that word with uh, this movie. Um, we've talked a lot about what we loved, so why don't we go into maybe we didn't like too much. Mel... We'll start with you because <laughs> I you already, look, you've already you've already teased the fact that yeah. you've got some things. Sorry, so, you I, know. I actually forgot about this section, so I've just been like sprinkling it along as I've talked. But yeah, I did too. So um, you're not you're okay. <laughs> for me, it does get too triacly, too syrupy at times. I hate I hate Justin's iconic shot. I hate the rooftop beer scene. I hate when he's just like really sitting oh there. Like a self-satisfied angel from heaven who like knows exactly how to make friends. Like, wow. like Haywood comes over and is like, oh, you want a cold one? <laughs> Unbelievable. And can I say my piece? Thank you. I, there, what else can you possibly me? say? Don't I'm a, fight. I'm going to throw myself off of a rooftop in honor of that scene. <laughs> I think this boy's about to have himself an accident. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, where's Clancy no, when I, we need him? It's not, it's not that I object to the content of the scene. Like, I think that is a really good way to set up their affection for Andy. And I think it's a really, like, I love the sort of, like, showing Hadley how he can keep the $35,000. That's great. It's the, like, again, the Haywood coming up to him being like, want a, want a cold one, Andy? <laughs> like, oh. Andy being like, nah, quit drinking. I'm just going to sit here like a weirdo. And, like... <laughs> And the I it just enhances again the preciousness the like borderline supernatural. I don't. But he had just been being raped for for months, just before <laughs> that. that. He's, has he's like, to do with, he's like, like, I finally, I'm gonna now they're fucked. Now I've got my revenge. Finally, that's the look on his face. I'm feeling like yeah, satisfaction. Because I, I feel like with Andy. Wait, what? No, it's the. We're talking about the same scene, right? Like, yeah, no, no, because I feel yeah. like with because I agree. He's, Justin, he's going to convince because he's helped him with his taxes. Yeah, and as a way to pay him back, he's going to beat the hell out of Boggs and all those sisters. And wait, and, no, this is not. I'm talking about the scene where he gets them the beers. Like, yeah, yes. no, no, but that's the thing. Like, I feel like Andy's always in the long game. Like, he's, he's always get thinking at least. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Like, he knows that that what this is. going to I read lead that to. scene as very much like earnestly aligning with him when he's like a man feels more like a man when he's got a bottle of suds and he's out on the roof and like that's that's the point uh, of the scene I, I don't I don't agree well what can I say I don't agree at all well it, you know look Mel this is, I don't agree this is a tough this is tough we, we had the same sort of tough situation here with Stand By Me because we were kind of like eh you know this this precious material so keep going what what, what do you got one more uh, you got another nightmare the birds <laughs> the bird yeah the bird we know the bird um I, the op uh, the opera <laughs> just, oh my god i just oh don't god. buy oh i don't buy that these hardened crim these male hardened criminals would be standing around like they get to watch rita hayward they get to watch movies like i again i don't quibble with the point of the scene or what it's trying to convey i just think it's a little too anti-realist and very it's precious for fable, me. It's all fable, though. It's all heightened. <laughs> I think you, it's say not that, the you say that, but the movie does not want to do that. Like, there are moments when it really doesn't want to be a fable that I really enjoy. I don't are, know. I think that, that so like, much of it is a fable. I, I None the, of this the is, novella feels real is a to fable. me. None yeah. of this feels real to me. I think it, it wants to have heightened. its cake and eat it, too. It wants to be like, this is very real, but also here, here are all these great emotional allegorical Ugh. elements. Well, yeah, that is a good point. But the, and here. it's when the two chafe that I object. And I think it works most of the time. I think it's a great movie. But there are points when I'm like, ugh. <laughs> Rhett. 
Okay. Okay. As a, you guys as are going to kill each other. As an but impartial <laughs> third party. Settle this, please, for one of us. The birds, bad. The rooftop <laughs> scene, good. And the the allegory. Okay, so he's always a little bit shallow of a character, Andy. But I think that's because we're only seeing him through the lens of red. Mm. So like too red, he is a cipher. Too red, he yeah, is. Yeah, that's without. Yeah, yeah. He's okay. impossible to fathom, right? But then eventually, as red gets to know him better, we do see these moments of humanity where he's like, "Yeah, I really like, I really like banging on rocks with a tiny hammer." And then eventually, <laughs> you know, I, he explains like his his true motivation and setting up this other stuff, but. I mean, I agree. The bird is ridiculous. As soon as you see the bird in the prison, you're like, oh, okay, we're going to watch this bird fly out of a fucking window. <laughs> and he does. Yeah. Although they, 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 but they don't do the ultimate cell, which I guess they yeah. have a deleted scene because in the book, they find the fucking bird dead. It's dead because it could never get away because the bird was institutionalized. Yeah. But that would, that would have been. That's too much. That would have been. <laughs> yeah. Andy no, it would have been better yeah. because that's the real. That is the realism of it all. But the, well, well, what if Brooks had said, you know, my bird died, so I died too, or something like that? <laughs> it's oh my God, Brooks. No. Uh, what if he, like, um, uh, I don't, never mind. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, can I just go back? Mel, I, I was being, uh, I was just goofing when I said rooftop, whatever, like m- making your point not valid because obviously. Oh my God, no, please. We okay. love to argue. But, oh, but yeah, I do. Oh, absolutely, please. Oh, yeah. I, I do wonder about, um, and I don't know how much you guys get into th- this question. I want this this uh, novella was written in '82, right? And it was, so it was before Stephen King got sober. And I know in our, in on writing, he talks a lot about um, things he wrote during those last years of um, using and drinking, and. You know, misery being the obvious one where when yeah. he was writing that, you know, she was cocaine and, mm. you know, it's uh, but I do wonder because 82 would have been and I shouldn't even do this because like this is a man I've met. He's a real human being, but he's made it public record to talk about his art through the lens of his history of uh, drinking and drug abuse. So but I just wonder, like the idea of being in a prison like um, and the the abstinence like uh uh andy's abstinence from drinking at that point i it just to me there's questions i don't know that there's an obvious thing like the bird flying out of the window and that's freedom blah 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 um but i do think it's i think it's interesting and and when i was reading it and watching the movie i wondered to what extent the part of the allegory for king because i don't think anything is ever one level with him no what was um, you know, was the jail that he himself was in at the time um, of, you know, booze and then eventually oh. cocaine. We well, talk about where yeah. he is every time we talk about a book and mm-hmm. how much it, how much what he's going through bleeds over into his work. So this is definitely we not do a lot of place. hypothesizing. Oh yes, yes <laughs> but I, but that's actually I never really thought about it in the context of Shawshank because it does make sense because if you think about Andy and his relationship to liquor and one of the reasons why he would go absent on it and would you know move away is that he's in that situation because of it. You know he can't even remember. I mean in the novella. You, he can't even really remember the details. Like he doesn't, he can't even say for sure if he bought the cloth that would couch the um, the gunshots and all. And I think that's King kind of reckoning with the fact that like he's admitted, fully admitted that he doesn't remember even writing Cujo. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and I I don't think it's he's so autobiographical when it comes to his writing when he wields into you know stories. I mean, one of the current episodes we have right now in our feed is Bag of Bones. Mel, you're on that, and you talk you guys have talked great lengths about how he was. Pr- 
extremely explicit about how he was Mike Noonan, that character in that, yeah, in that movie much like, it's or in the book. In. So I, I do, I don't think it's too much of a stretch and it's, it makes me really think of the, of Andy's relationship with drinking in that scene much differently now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and and I wonder about, you know, the the theme of hope versus hopelessness, just because that is something that comes up a lot when people are reckoning with their own drinking and mm-hmm. then emerging into sobriety. Um, I myself am six years sober. And when I met Stephen King, it's something that we talked about, just sobriety. And it's mm-hmm. something that he loves to talk about. Like it's to him, it's super interesting and fascinating thing. So I do I do. I imagine that this entire jail prison scenario was informed partially by, you know, the the situation he was in at the time where he was he was um, uh, kept down prisoner to this, you know, the addiction. Yeah. I mean, because even when he talks about things that he's since quit, especially smoking, because I'm trying to get I'm trying to shake smoking myself. And so when I see him talking about that, the way he talks about it, I can see it's coming from a personal place and uh and he brings it up all the time i mean he talks about it even in, like more recent books so you can see it's something that still gets under him mm-hmm. um about it so yeah it makes sense um yeah. part of the draw of stephen king i think is that people can trace so much of his books there it, it reads personal it reads emotional it reads individualized in a way that is that makes you feel that you have access to a layer mm-hmm. of the author, um, for better or for worse. I was gonna say, yeah, for better yeah, or worse. that is true. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk I about say one more, one more thing. Yeah, I was gonna say for worse. <laughs> what else do you got? For worse. Um, the escape. No, I love the escape. <laughs> you know the monologue that's taken from the novella that is really beautiful about how birds, how some birds aren't just just aren't meant to be caged. Like to me, that commits the major sin of the novella, which is differentiating Andy on a near like predetermined level from criminals, like as Mm -hmm. a class, right? Like it's like none of these men could ever do what Andy did. And none of them are as good as Andy. And Andy is a special case because he's innocent and he's smart and he doesn't let these things touch him. And I think the movie is also trying to say a lot of good stuff about the carceral system with the parole hearings, with all this crazy bullshit that goes on in the prison. But this, the, unfortunately by the end, Andy's exceptionalism shines through in a way that reinforces uh, some very blinkered thinking about like who criminals are and like how they act and what they deserve. And I think, I think that's, that's not great. We shouldn't be like separating Andy as this like crazy different person from like all these other bad men <laughs> in Shawshank. Yeah. Cause I mean, ultimately he is innocent. So it's true. Yeah, yeah. He didn't do it. You know, and but that so doesn't I, that doesn't mean that Red doesn't deserve to get out at the oh, end. Oh, I know. You know? Oh, like, I agree. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's that exceptionalism is one of the only real negatives I would bring. Is that you can have like maybe a couple moments where Andy's you know fucks up here and there. You know, like maybe <laughs> something doesn't work out for him. I mean, I granted he goes through. Not to say that he doesn't go through his own trials and tribulations here. He certainly does, but. You know, maybe he does something that 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 that, that didn't exactly work for him. And I just think favorite. the thing with the warden backfiring yeah. for the, the very end, yeah, definitely yeah. backfires on him. The obtuse yeah. moment. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned obtuse, Justin, for you in this section. So it's. I what, think what, what, of all the Stephen King characters, the scariest ones to me often are the humans, and it's because of, of things like this. Where I, I I have so many problems when I when I hear or see people act a certain way that to me is totally irrational or just plain crazy. 
And this is an example of how can somebody be this awful? Because this is what he's basically saying at this moment in time is you are absolutely awful. I'm literally telling you that I, that there's a way to prove that I'm innocent. And even though you are the warden and, you know, and you know that there's a possibility of a free man being, you know, staying before you and you're not going to help me. I cannot believe this is happening. So I really just felt that moment. And that that's the word that always sticks out to me with the movie is obtuse. Mm-hmm. So that for me is, I wouldn't remove it. This is a, more of a, 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 a dreamscape. Dream. Yeah. It's a dreamscape <laughs> it's a, No, it's a great moment. Yeah. Oof. yeah. It's, but it's disturbing. It's it's disturbing. Yeah, he's standing in for the whole institution at that moment, yes. where it's mm-hmm. like it's it's money, like it's. Yeah. <laughs> what would you do? What would you do in that moment, though? I mean, clearly, Maybe. I don't think I don't think any of us would be able to con- concoct a plan that's extravagant yeah. as this. I, I just don't like. I, I, not to no. say you know, I'm not trying to say anything negative about ourselves. We're well, all we sorry, all are Justin, ingenuity. This is also a moment where Red isn't seeing things. This is a moment where Andy's a person. Like this isn't a fable. This is Andy having a legitimate human reaction to something. True. Um, in, in the novel or in the novella, he hears about it through the guy, the guard who's posted right outside the door, listens through the door. That's so what I'm guessing is happening here. Yeah. And in the novella, <laughs> really? he, says, he says, I'm just imagining it from the story I heard. So he's mm-hmm. he kind of builds it up. So it's yeah. even in a way, it's even less. Uh, it's even more sort of imaginary because he's just made it up out of a secondhand story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. In well, the novella. But I think the movie's presenting it as something You're right. that really happened. It's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could poke holes in every movie that's ever been narrated, though. I know. Every movie that's ever been narrated has moments where the, the, the narrator isn't present, I'm sure. Yeah, still works, though, I feel. But yeah. anything else that any, any nightmares anyone else has? Uh, Rhett, Justin? The, man, the bird was the big one for me. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I, can be, I can be so critical in so many episodes hard. that we've done. But I, I personal, personally, I, I just don't, I don't know. I, yeah. You know what? I will say I like what Mel said though about the um, it was it was a bit too on the nose. The sometimes with the bird the bird being caged, Mel that line. Yeah. I could you know what? Their feathers are just too. Bright. Let's take that out. Yeah, we can take that out of the movie. That's fine. I agree. Keep well, the, keep the, I guess the I just miss my friend. Like that's oh, I love great. that yeah. part. I love that part. Yeah. What if if instead he instead of uh of the bird he like takes the maggot and eats himself? Do we? Oh my do God. We, you know just. Well, that's what you're supposed to think. Is I know. <laughs> well, what if it does? You're like, oh, that's good protein. Do you like Brooks? Is Brooks a lovable character if he eats the the maggot? Yes. Or okay, all right. Well. The buggy and book cart man, love him. We got Fear Factor here. Um, speaking of Fear Factor, I'm getting the shivers um, mm. because I think we're approaching the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there. Ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. All right. Well, in the cemetery, we talk about the scariest scenes. I mean, I don't know about you. I think it's the sisters. Bogs. Yeah. Yeah, but I got I bogs written down. It's it box. It's, it's getting another month in the in solitary. Mm. When he comes back and says, "Give him another month to think about it," I like curl up on the couch Oof. like a, like a roly poly. I'm like, God. Yeah, especially at that point because his life is pretty good. Like if if he had said, "You got another month," and Boggs is still out in there like haunting around, I'd be like, "Good, okay." But I think just the idea of prison. I, I think about yeah. that all the time. Like, yeah. how would I make it through knowing I can't 
I get, cla- I, I feel like I've become more claustrophobic over time. So I can't imagine knowing that for like 20 years, maybe the rest of my life, I can't leave a certain square footage. Mm. I don't know how my brain would react to that. So that bothers the hell out of me thinking about that. And the institution is a problem. Yeah. As well. That's true. What about you, Rhett? What scares you the most in this movie? Well, it's that. What what was the great line about um, uh, bad luck is a funny thing. Boy, it's something that I feel like Stephen King inserts some version of this into everything he writes, where it's like, um, bad luck is a funny thing. It just floats around and every once in a while it lands Mm -hmm. on you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So like I've, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to do the right thing. I've tried not to screw up or hurt anybody in, in a way that would, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm try, trying to stay out of prison, but <laughs> bad luck is a funny thing. What if it had landed on me? What if I wound up in this place? I don't think I would have the strength or uh, cunning that um, that Andy has. That, no. Yeah, that's yeah. freaking terrifying. Yeah. And, yeah, that's that to me. That's that's the t- most the scariest thing because with that goes solitary bogs, all of you know life, just the re- just knowing that the rest of your life is here. Yeah, oh. I uh, yeah that first night I'm not making a sound. I'm uh, I'm making a noose and I'm just gonna kill myself oh, because like I, wow, I mean not it got I, dark. So anyway, thanks for <laughs> having but, me, you guys. But no, no, but, <laughs> but, no, but this, seriously though, like if, if someone tells you have a life sentence, you're yeah. staying here. Yeah. I, I don't know if I have the willpower to keep going in prison. I just don't. I I I. I because I'm not going to be as ingenuity. I'm not going to have the ingenuity to be like, oh, well, I got a poster and I chisel out here for 20 years and yada, yada, yada. This is not going to happen. Because no, I know I'd be like, like, I'd be like, you know what? I'm pretty good with taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, human, human resilience is a funny thing. <laughs> like, That's I true. Think, I think you guys might surprise yourselves. But I do also think that, you know, the prison of today is different from the prison conveyed in this movie, which is also just not like a fully accurate. Like, I don't know what prison is like. I actually went to a bunch of Reddit like AMAs before this episode just to be like, yeah, what is prison like now? And like reading people who had experienced it. And yeah, it seems very different now. It's, it still seems like it really fucking sucks. Um, by different, I do not mean better. I mean, probably even worse. Like, I think this is a pretty sterile portrayal of, of prison other oh, than it is. these terrible yeah. fights and, and rapes that happen. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it's pretty romanticized, um, especially by the end, which is, which is a fun move on the part of the movie because we too become a little institutionalized, right? Mm-hmm. We're like, all we know is this prison. Like, what would it be? to be on the outside um well you got like shawshank on one side and then you have oz on the other and you're like Oof. Uh, yeah i haven't seen oz love christopher maloney yeah but, well let, let, let's just say well, um if you want to talk about things getting dark uh, that yeah. that's a show that gets dark really fast <laughs> that um, show becomes so comical by the end it's yeah it's it's an interesting watch now I'll say yeah if, if you're on hbo max <laughs> okay. you're like you're like you're at like that area of the the bingeable shows Go with Larry Sanders show. Go with the Larry yeah, Sanders show. You know, <laughs> just gonna go with this that one. This is all to say that the scariest part to me is the solitary. Like yes. I, that's torture. That's a reason why it's torture. Um, you can't you can't just put a person in a in a tiny cell for days on end and expect them to emerge a sane human. Yeah. Oof. And I know we're not doing book versus movie, but in in the book, it's a hole oh. in the ground with a grate on the top and a can where they give you your fresh water and you piss in it. Ugh, it's Ugh. Disgusting. That's when I read that. That's Ugh. when I was like, I'm done. 
And I don't mean, and I, I, you know, I don't, I don't mean the joke about the, you know, the idea of, of what would I do? Like, I I just, I, I I just don't see myself surviving this. Like I, I, I'm, I would be fucked. I mean, last weekend I literally had a, a mental breakdown at the movie theater because they ran out of soap and someone had just shit in the, in the, the stall next to me. And wait, and, what? Well, I, 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 wait, what's I, happening? So I was it's because about I, control over your surroundings and hygiene. Exactly, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Is that like I, I literally like when I went to go when I saw that you know all these people like the guy that in front of me oh. was using the the sink had just like gone to the bathroom and then they oh. ran out of soap. I lost my mind. Like I couldn't even focus on the movie anymore until I found like some some hand sanitizer. So th- take that and then put me in day one of Shawshank. I'm done. It's over. Fishy, I'm, fishy. I'm, I'm done. I'm the I'm fish, the guy fish. that's on the ground. I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> They're like, shut up. Oh, like, no. you know, Sadler wins. Um, any Sadler. other cemetery? <laughs> uh, that I've, I've oh, embarrassed yeah, myself. Really, the I think the Blatch confession is pretty creepy. Yeah, he is so creepy. That's great. He's so right creepy. There. Yeah, I mean, it says a lot though. Like, you gonna say all this stuff? Like, were you nuts? That story being told from another story, you know. Once again, it's people not. People like, are like that, though. People do that. Yeah, I've met many murderers, and I'll tell you. No, I mean, not murderers; they're just people. Uh, you're what you're right you, about that. We've talked about that. Too right, so, if, if you're if you're Andy, I always do, you, do think Justin. When I was like, hey, "Do you think you've ever met a murderer in your life?" And you used to work at like a hotel in Florida, oh, yeah. and I'm I like, did, Justin's yeah. probably met like like seventy murderers. I worked yeah. at a 500 room hotel in Florida. I'm talking I'm people sure. who got away with it, right? Like. Oh yeah. I, yeah, which is creepy. Was it like that, four? You, you know, you know what scares me? That oh. my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, spe- yeah, I'll save that for another time. But um, is that it? We are we are we, are we good? Are we, are we scared enough? <laughs> we we can we leave the cemetery because I'm, I'm kind of everything to do with prison. Everything. Yeah. The holes and the whole situation is terrifying. No. I used to think that Red digging up the the treasure by the oak tree was going to be proof and a confession that Andy really did kill his wife. It just says sucker. (laughs) I think that I actually think that that's what you're supposed to. Yeah. You're supposed to wonder. It's kind of scary when the music cuts out and it's just the bugs and he's like prying up the lid and he's like, what's in here? Takes favorite favorite moment of the movie. You want to talk about obvious metaphors too. There's a ship on there that represents freedom on the tin can. So Ah, yeah, ah. that was, that was implied. Although the, yeah. It could also represent travel and the Mm -hmm. ocean. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, if you did, you know, if you're Andy, you get across the, the, you know, you get to Mexico. Are you writing a letter back that's like, hey, I know who actually did kill my wife. <laughs> you could get, are you going to try to get got, get that guy? Because I mean, I kind of want to get the guy. He's roaming around doing nothing. You have his but, name. You know what? You you know you said like Darabont had to cut a bunch out. I'm sure there was some other ending like. Well, I'm glad and, that got cut. I got, <laughs> And, and as for Blatch, let's just say he got nailed with another murder or something. Like that. Sometimes I think there must have been more. There must have been more about Tyrell, the guy who works in the infirmary, because we get that scene with him at the beginning, and then we also mm-hmm. see him like looking out of the infirmary during the opera part. And I'm like, oh, it's Tyrell, that guy. <laughs> like, I want to know more about him. What if he's a uh, you know uh, related to Tyrell from Blade Runner? Um, Probably. Anyway, wow. But uh, yeah, <laughs> speaking great, of Roger Deakins, great, great pull. <laughs> well, look, Blade Runner takes place in a very far away future. <laughs> A very faraway future that you might call fantasy. And you might call this place a fantasy world also. It's a place we like to call on this podcast, King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. How about that seg? I pulled that one out of my ass. Very good, very good. Yeah, not too bad. There's a lot, Um, actually. 
you know, so there is a lot of Kings Dominion. Mel, run, do, you know, this is the section, obviously, where we talk about the connections to King's World, King's Dominion, hence the name. Mel, what were some connections you saw? Same shit, different day. Mm. Um, although this came out before Dreamcatcher made that like a very big Kingian. I mean, that's just like all throughout that book. Um, but he uses it a lot. I don't know. Um, Morgan Freeman is in cell 237. Yep. Mm. Um, what else? Good folder. <laughs> There's one I found out that I that I could not believe I never saw before. Um, what? So in King's story, the character that uh, Tim Robbins or Andy becomes is Peter Stevens. But they had to change it for legal reasons. Randall Stevens. So it became Randall Stevens. And Darabont literally says on the commentary that he did it because it was a reference to Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was cool. The blue chambray work shirts. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it was set in Maine. It is set in Maine. There you go. <laughs> That's, right. That's true. That's true. But nobody had a Maine accent. That is true. That, that I actually never thought about that. He, they, nobody sounds like they're from Maine. No. Da Maine sound, or they... It feels like it's in Georgia or something like that. Um, the judge is also the judge in Thinner, or at least the actor. Wow. I mean, that's not really a King's Dominion there, but, you know. Well, that's, um, that's, I feel like so much of this, you know, I feel like a lot of this, in, just in terms of the King films to come, like Mel mentioned, like or even books like Dreamcatcher, um, just the whole Green Mile vibe is very much in sync with Shawshank, just yeah. the casting crew. Of that's that, true. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think that's it for the connections, but I had one question to ask. Mm. It's one that I really wanted to get early on, but I figure it works better in King's Dominion. Is this the greatest Stephen King movie? This I have three movies on the top tier. Carrie, The Shining, and The Shawshank Redemption. That's so yeah. funny. I would have I would have thought for sure that you would have put Stand by Stand See, by Me up there. Yeah, that's me. That's because... the tier below with like misery and um the mist and but I still think that those are really good. But I think that those three for me are ten out five out of five. It's the most it's the most watchable Stephen King adaptation by far. Yeah, it is just like something you can throw on with anyone, right? Like you can't throw The Shining. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so says you. I love being in the Overlook. I mean, hotel. I'm saying you can physically, um, but it, they might not react well. Legally, yeah. you can. Legally, yeah. it's legally fine, you but... can you can do that. I think The Shining is a better, riskier movie. Sure. Um. So. If I'm looking for, yeah, sort of like aesthetic ownership or like something that mm-hmm. is just in its fucking niche and like making bold decisions, I'm like, sure, yeah, The Shining's a better movie. Shawshank, more watchable, uh, more epic. Yeah, it is epic. Is this? I think this probably is, this is definitely the epic Stephen King movie, even over The Green Mile, I would say, because I don't feel like, I feel like the, mo- the movie The Green Mile is only epic because of how long it is because <laughs> <laughs> we're all on a journey watching. yeah you're in a fucking room it looks like our town or it looks like you're watching like a i don't know um a tennessee williams play or something um Rhett, you mentioned stand by me mm. would you put that above this i don't think i would put it above this just because i think this is more like perfect mm. does that make sense it's like yeah. um stand by me has kind of more more going on it's it's allowed to roam around more this is like you know weirdly insular and these characters in this space um i mean i guess that's that's a limited number of characters as well but i just feel like maybe it's the fact that it's the coming of age element of that and um uh but i do think this is a better movie like i think this movie I think there's a reason it's, you know, widely regarded as one of the best movies of all time. And so, yeah, how could it not be? 
the best maybe if you I would you'd have to probably separate out the horror movies just because I think they, so yeah they work so differently yeah, yeah I, I it's it's hard for me because we did a list a while back because I used to you know used to work for this site called Consequence of Sound and we did a long list of um of King adaptations and we included like everything I mean t- like directive video sequels and shit the Mangler like two yeah it was ridiculous <laughs> but we we did have that question of like do we separate them. And we didn't, but then ultimately all the dramatic works just got in the top 10 anyway. <laughs> so it's just like, you know. What was the top one? It was Stand By Me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was controversial pick in the time because a lot of people didn't think that. I, I still would put Stand By Me ahead, but I agree that I think this is a more perfect movie. I do, I do think that because I think Stand By Me is definitely rough around the edges, which is funny because they both feel, well, this is certainly a debut for, for Darabont. But Reiner would go on to say, like, he feels like Stand By Me is his debut because he didn't really, that was like the first time he ever felt like he was able to make like a statement with it, like something, a personal statement. Hmm. Um, in that respect, I would say Darabont wins out because this is certainly a sharper movie. It is sharp. It's just sharp and neat and perfect, like mm-hmm. you guys are saying. Just like, again, like, it's what movies should aspire to, like, be structured like yeah. and... It's like what Mel said. It's just, it's so watchable. Yeah, you know, it's just yeah. Like I feel like as grim as things get in Shawshank, in a way, I feel like Stand by Me is grimmer. It is. You know, I mean, they're going to find a, a child's body. You think about what Gordon's going through at home, the the fates of everybody involved. You know, it's not like it's not as feel good as I think people maybe misremember it being if they haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. I just think it's like about a bunch of kids going on eating, an adventure, you know? Eating blueberry pies. Woo. Yeah. I know. That's the thing. It's, <laughs> it's it, it gets, this guy vomits. It's hilarious. It definitely gets into more genre elements in that movie because mm. of, yeah, because the blueberry pie thing. What makes you cry more, though? Oh, Shawshank. Yeah? Yeah. Ditto. I'm a sucker for good music. I'm just that. And that music, whenever that music kicks in, like Mela, like Mela made that point yesterday. Um, I, I'm just a sucker for that. And it just knocks me on my. my my ass. I gotta go with Stand by Me. I, when we watched we watched Stand by Me at the music box and we presented it, I literally had to go to the bathroom and cry for like a few minutes, and I was in a weird mood the rest of the night. Like it's just it's just something about that movie. Just I don't know. I also probably get more emotional at the end of the Dead Zone. No spoilers. Oof, that movie. Yeah, more good music. Anyway, oh Mel, oh I can't uh, wait. Well, wait <laughs> till the winter. I, I want to watch that with you actually. Yeah, I yeah, seriously. Well, I, I I I'm I apologize everyone because I did skip over a category we had been teasing Ooh. it earlier. I think we could not do this category though. I think that because we've just talked about how great this movie is, I think it's a disservice to do the the section pound cake. I'm sorry, constant listeners. I there think really isn't any. Well, the only the pound cake there is is the brutality. Well, there, no, <laughs> the, opening, the opening of the cheating wife like that gets pretty graphic. But... Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. And then the, and the fact that he crawls through shit is like Stephen King's like just dream because he loves talking about scatological stuff. But yeah. like you know, and obviously having posters of women <laughs> in prison cells. I can't even imagine. Or, or maybe you know... I just don't want to. Well, yeah. if we're sticking on, let's do a little mini pancake here, a nibble. After all you've been done. I wanted to ask if you had a poster that you were going to put up on the wall. You can get mm. as smutty as you want. Something that gets you through the day. Just go all <laughs> smutty as you want. I mean, just who would you have on the on the wall? I said I, Debbie I, Harry, but uh, Clancy Brown, Pet Cemetery too. Um, especially <laughs> when he's got the, 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 the like mashed that. potatoes in his mouth falling out. Who would I have on my wall? I Ape will shape. say the, I, this I really is to never get you through that. years, right? Like yes, this is, I'm you talking. Know, you got to make a very oh considered choice here. Oh yeah, yeah. It has to be somebody, somebody classic. It can't be somebody just of today, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, can't be Kristen Stewart. <laughs> get back to me. Okay. Get back to me. Red, Kristen who you Stewart put in- on the Venice red carpet this past week. <laughs> there you go. That's pretty, pretty well, amazing. I was but right. The, but, but you're, you're right. <laughs> but you don't even take I mean, away that's the, pretty good. You don't take Classy, the watermark. beautiful. Yeah, it's, you leave it, it, Getty images. Exactly. It's still, it says <laughs> the Getty stamp. smeared rectangle in the middle of everything. Uh, like Red couldn't get that. It's like, oh, you know, uh, it was a little expensive getting the lights rights to the, the Kristen Stewart. It's pretty Stewart funny to imagine the, the warden being like, everyone's in on it, even her. Yeah. And it's Kristen yeah. Stewart. <laughs> it's like, the warden's like, who's this Getty I keep seeing all over the walls? <laughs> she kind of looks like Princess Diana. Um, Red, who are you putting on the wall? Um, how about Francoise Hardy, the French pop chanteuse? whose peak was in the late mid to late 60s. Oh, nice. Now that's classy. That is there classy. That this is, is what I was talking about. Yeah, good luck on all the other options, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Red's like, can you spell that for me? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, can you write that out on a post-it? Um, Mel. It's, Justin was making fun of this about me last night. It's got to be young Pacino. <laughs> oh, hey, that young. is I, like, I, well, Scarecrow era Pacino. For well, is that the, what's that? What's that movie that was on uh, Criterion that like he plays like a like an addict or something like that? Like, oh, uh, Panic in Needle Park. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's that. You know, it's like him just. There's with some the black and white still of him just sitting down. I'm t- fully clothed. You know, like just looking right at the camera. Looking right really good. Eyes. You got a big cell. Um, <laughs> just think of it. Hey, Mel. Mel, I'll give you another meet your heroes. My mom answered. Uh, she used to, she used to take calls for American Airlines like platinum desk or whatever. Oh my um, god! Worked at American, <laughs> and Al Pacino called in one time, and she had like a thirty minute helping him through a, a botched uh, booking. Said oh. he was like, the nicest guy she'd ever met. Oh, thank God! <laughs> I just you, I, there's an SNL sketch about him calling a mattress factory, and I'm imagining <laughs> the exact. He's like, hello. I want an astronaut bed. You know, I feel like that's the conversation now. This is I just imagining him like instead of a woman, he's just like coming on to the mountain. Like, you know, you have a great, you have a beautiful voice. You know, it's a beautiful it's, voice. Let me guess, you're wearing, uh, you know, it's like names, perfumes, and stuff. And it's like, it's like, gratifying yeah. to hear that he's that he's kind. Yeah, yeah. Who are you? That's all right, amazing. you get the choice: Clancy Brown or Al Pacino to to hook up with. Who are you going with, Mo? Um, is it young? Is it how old are they? Are they their ages now? Like that's. <laughs> It's ideal. It's, okay, dr- it's your dr- the, the 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 devil on your shoulders or whatever comes up and gets guess what? That's a t- that's a mood dependent question. Okay, here we go. Okay, so, right. You don't so need to digress. Mel, I got it. Ready? Nineteen seventy four Pacino or nineteen ninety three Clancy Brown? Again, Fresh Shop Pet Cemetery. Listen. It depends on what I want that night from the vibe. Let's oh, you just realized good news. There's multiple posters. I forgot. So you can have all yeah, the, throughout the years. True. You can keep changing them. I will carve fine. one of them out of soapstone. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, we've 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 danced okay. around this enough. Justin, give us an answer. I did. All right, so it's going to be Kristen Stewart from the, Why not? The, she okay, looks, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that look that she had on the Venice carpet. All right. Ten years from now, being like, you know what? Not attractive. <sighs> so that's that's going to be my go-to for now. Well, look, we've had a lot of fun. We know our posters. We know where we stand on the bird. <laughs> That's the takeaway. <laughs> it's time to give our final thoughts on the Shawshank Redemption. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Well, in this section, I don't know how to say it. It's where we give our final thoughts. Um, Justin, kick it off. It's fine. You know, um, Deece. No. Pretty good. Pretty Certified good. Certified Listen, I've waxed 
nostalgic about this movie for the last two and a half hours. I've said my piece. You know, I've said it. I'm going to give this five rock hammers out of five. Ooh, yeah, I, I like the it. rock hammers. That's good. All each one found in a, in a Bible or something like that. Mm, to Exodus, yes. To really hammer, ah, hammer the point. Huh? All right, well that's fair, Mel. I think that you know, for every nitpick you can have about this movie, it sort of redirects you anyway. It just gets you back on the road to utter enjoyment. Um, yeah. So. I can have my nitpicks. I can I can drink my haterade um, and still hey, oh God. <laughs> and still think that this is eminently watchable and enjoyable. And I get choked up watching it. I think I think for me again, its primary value just lies in being this um, conduit to emotional vulnerability for everyone, for anyone that watches it. Um, it is a permissive film in that way. It it just opens people up. And it really doesn't matter who that person is. (laughs) They can be a teen. They can be like your grandfather. um, They can be anyone. Um, And it's timeless in that way. I think a lot of other movies made in this era do not really hold up to scrutiny. Um, So yeah, I think, I think it just does amazing work as a piece of, of filmmaking art. Um, In addition to that, I think it's a paced perfectly. I think it, the way it doles out information is is sort of incredible. The way it's structured, it's just so sharp, as you said, Mike. Um, I will give it 4.5 out of 5 rock hammers. Nice. Um, due to my allergy to schmaltz. But... <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Uh, Rhett. Um, so I can see why it's tempting to think of it as a fable or a parable. I can see why it's tempting to uh, try to um, apply, you know, a, the Christian story to it, mm. or or even like we were doing earlier to try and imagine that the prison um, that inspired King, you know, was that of alcoholism or whatever. Um, I wonder, for me, when I watched the movie, when I, when I read the novella, I wonder if. I you know I don't think he was in necessarily intending any of it um, consciously, but to me it just feels like it's the human condition, right? Like how do we survive this life? And if you're hopeless, then life will be that prison. Life will be the the dark place. Um, but you know if you if you persevere, if you find a way to um, to make it a better, brighter thing every single day, you know, and you walk out and stand in the sunlight, and sift a little uh, rock dust out the secret pocket <laughs> in the pants leg. <laughs> you know, I think I think um, it can be a really beautiful place, imminently survivable. Mm. Great movie. Five out of five rock hammers in Bibles. Love it. Love it. In Bibles. <laughs> this is, I like this. Yeah. Keeping the Bible. Um I mean, I mean, what more is there to say? I, I, I think we've talked a lot about this being universal, and I think that's why both this and Stand by Me uh, have endured all these decades. Um, which is actually pretty great that we talked about Stand by Me too. Uh, you know, the month before, I think there's a lot of symmetry here, as we've discussed. Um, I'd still give the edge to, to Stand by Me, partly because um, you know I've never been to prison, God willing. <laughs> Um, really got definitely discovered a lot of um, dead bodies in the woods. Okay. I have, I did, but no, but I, but I think the themes of youth and friendship are, are always just going to sting the further and further I get in age. But here's the thing. I think this movie kind of 
plucks similar heartstrings for me. Um, it's just in a different key, you know, like our parents, our mentors, our teachers, they're always going to warn you about the challenges in life, but you never really get that feeling of what the challenge is until you are in the shit yourself. And speaking personally without getting too in depth, I've been in the shit a lot these past two years. Um, so much so that I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. Watching this movie, it hits a lot harder now um, because I always think of this quote that Winston Churchill says where it's like, where if you're in hell, just keep walking, you know? And it's such a fucking cliche. I mean, they probably have shirts and magnets made out of it. In fact, I have a magnet somewhere of it, but um, it, it's it really, that's what I think really hits me hard about this movie. And it kind of goes into this quote that I was going to pull just from Tim Robbins that really just we keep saying hammer, but really does hammer the point of this movie. He said, he told Vanity Fair, I believe part of the reason the movie is so important to people is that in a way it works as a whole for whatever your life is, that no matter what your prison is, whether it's a job that you hate, a bad relationship that you're slogging through, whether your warden is a terrible boss or a wife or a husband, it holds out the possibility that there is freedom inside you. And that at some times it takes a while. And then at some point in life, there's a warm spot in the beach and that we can all get there. And it takes mm. a while. I don't think he's wrong. And I think that's probably the biggest sell of this movie. And I think that's why people tune in and out um, because we're always in the shit. We, everyone gets in the shit. That's a part of life. Um, so Sounds like having hope. You know? Yeah, you know, you got to have the hope. And I think that Shawshank nails all these themes 10 out of 10 across the board. So five, five uh, hammers in Bibles with posters of every pinup that you could possibly imagine. I just think this is fucking great. It's, it's up there with Did you give us your Samberman. poster? So. Oh yeah. Debbie Harry. Oh, Debbie, Debbie Harry. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Salvation lies within. Salvation does lie within and it lies beyond this, uh, this episode because, uh, you know, we keep living. Um, and we are going to keep living because this is, uh, this is, this is, you know, we got to get busy. We got to get busy now. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Mm. And I just want to, I just want to say that we've got some good news. Um, the board just came in and we're all paroled. So, oh wow, I know it's, it's pretty wild. I, it's been, it's Approved. been a long time coming. So, uh, before we go though, let's catch everyone up on where we're going next. Um, Rhett, what do you have coming up? Mm. Uh, since all the gigs are pretty much getting canceled, I'm doing multiple shows a week online. Uh, I'm on the stage it platform right oh, now. Nice. Um, yeah, there's there's a handful of live shows, I think, but that's the main place you can find me. Great. We'll have a link there for sure in the info, so we could all tune Red, in. Red, I just looked this up because I know you were you're getting a little nervous about getting older. Good news, and I mean this sincerely. You are actually older than Bob Gunton is as the warden in Shawshank Redemption. No <laughs> fucking way. That's insane. Justin yeah, loves you, doing you this. Great. You love doing and this you, on but, episodes. But you look great, so that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. it, No worries. <laughs> Bob Gunn was 50 years old when they filmed Shawshank. I just looked it up. Yeah, that's insane. Pe- people back then looked old. I'm telling yeah. you, I 100% agree. I do this all the time. I, I don't know. Everybody looks old. Everybody still well, looks I mean, old. Well, I mean, look at the 90s. But look at like, you know, people in the 60s, you're like watching them on like shows. Like, like I always think of Rod Serling, the fact he like sat there just fucking chain smoking every episode. And it's like, and he yeah, was they- 25 years old when they started the time. <laughs> <laughs> what about Wilford Brimley in Cocoon? Yes, How that's old the my- best that's example. That's the one. That's How the old example. was he? He oh, was, wow. he's, he, like Paul Rudd is older so. than him now. And you look at Paul Rudd and you're like, what the fuck? I mean, Paul Rudd's an anomaly, but anyway. Okay. Um, you ready for this? Red? Yeah. 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 You are the same age as Wilfred Brimley was in Cocoon. <laughs> 
This is what now, I'm saying. Positive reinforcement. You yeah. See? I don't know if that's good. No, Honestly, I'm, though, if you had not told and me... Listen, age, and, the, and he lived to be 85. Okay. So I think you're going to live to be at least 100. This, oh, is, yeah. this, is, what, this you, is what the, the demo is telling late, me. You look like you're in your late 30s. It looks amazing. You, you look amazing. I'm very jealous. Um, Thanks, y'all. Um, we'll, we'll definitely be sure to to promote the shows because um, I know this is uh, weird times. Just weird times. It's been a weird summer, too. Um, <laughs> God damn it, I hit this world. Um, <laughs> Mel, <laughs> what are you currently working on? Um, yeah, in this, in this rotten apple core of a world, you can find me... Um, <laughs> Just online at melcastle.com. Um, I'm I'm just working on writing. I have mentioned this on a couple other episodes, but I'll do it again for self-promotion. I have a story coming out in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy Anthology. So those will be in stores in October. And you can be, read my story about a family that fights a giant crawfish every year. It's called Crawfather. It's, uh, it's pretty great. Yes, that's Love awesome. It. Love it. Thanks. <laughs> Justin, what do we have coming up on Halloweenies? Well, coming up on Halloweenies... Um, you, you might have heard Mel and Rhett both agreed to be on our Dead Silence episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah, James Wan's I'll only come on if we can talk about, really. can talk about heat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we just God. talk about heat after 30 minutes. Oh, uh, God. But no, we are, we've got Dead Silence coming up on our Halloweenies podcast, as well as, you know what the big thing is coming up? is We've got Basic Instinct, which we is don't. a very fun episode to record uh, with, with Megan Navarro on, from Blade Disgusting as well. And please be sure to check out the Patreon over there, patreon.com backslash Halloweenies pod. And I, during this episode, I discovered that we now have 300 patrons. Holy shit. So wow. That's amazing. That's yeah, great. So. We've been waiting to get there. So yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, and you can also find me at other Losers Club stuff too. But anyway. Yeah. 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 Same. <laughs> yeah. What, so so uh, real quick, Twitter handles for, for each of you. Rat. Uh, you know what? It was depressing. I thought I was more famous than this. I got my own name. No underscores, no anything. Just Rhett Miller. That's great. Twitter, at Instagram. <sighs> Failure. No, that's great. That's great. No, 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 no. That's mine. That's, I'm the same. Mel Castle. Every, every social network. Well, Mine's Justin would be the same yeah. if he didn't delete his fucking Twitter that's account right. seven so on times. on Twitter... I'm I'm at Justin Gerber seven because I deleted <laughs> at least six accounts before that over the last ten years uh, in fury. Um, I'm not there that much anymore, but I'm there a little bit more than I had been. But uh, and you can find me on Instagram. I think it's like it's probably just Justin Gerber or Justo. You'll I think it's me. Justo Gerber. Either way, yeah, we'll we'll have the links in the the info. Um, as for us, what do we got next, constant listeners? Well, we got a lot. Uh, October. This episode is coming at the tail end of September, which means that spooky season is here. And God damn it, we have a lot of tricks and treats for you. We got so much stuff. So stay tuned on the socials for the full schedule. Uh, I will say you need to start reading based, and you already know this because we've already released the reading schedule for the, the rest of the year, but you got to start reading Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes, because we're going to be talking about that in October, mm. which seems uh, fitting because the book takes place uh, in the, the month of October. So I'm so um, excited for that. I can't wait. So The great. Dark the dark Spoiler, Carnival. Great book. Great book. And, certified uh, Fresh. It is uh, Certified yes, Fresh. I, yes. A, a, at least an 80 on Metacritic. At least an 80. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet it's a 94. Um, Ooh, okay. Maybe not the adaptation, though. Um, Disney Plus, put it on. It's a good movie. Uh, but anyway. Get that Bradbury book. Get reading, or uh, get busy reading, or get busy. I don't. I don't really know. But um, <laughs> dying seems a little maudlin there. But you know, I don't want you to die if you don't read the Bradbury book. Anyway, I've digressed. Thank you everyone for this episode. I hope you all had fun. I hope this episode is as blue for you, constant listeners, as it has been in my dreams. And I hope we get to see each other, my friends, over long days, 
and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>